Welcome to the podcast dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. Today, we have Dr. Kyle Pfaffenbach back with us from Eastern Oregon University, and we're yeah. going to answer some of the... Oh, yeah, yeah yet again. <laughs> Stoked to have you, Kyle. It's going to be great. Yeah, uh, we are going... Last time, I think that we had like seven questions to get to, and we got to we got through one. It was really good. So uh, we're going to get to question two this week. <laughs> uh, these questions are submitted at trainerroad.com slash podcast. This first one comes from Nathan. Uh, he says, hey, everybody, I just listened to the goal setting podcast and I need help. Coach Jonathan described eating 35 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass, then dropping to 30 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass. But then what? I made some training changes last year that resulted in me gaining weight, not in a good way. Mountain biking is my thing. It's at my fastest. I was probably about 140 pounds and over four watts per kilogram in October of 2020 and probably about 13% body fat. I added weightlifting and creatine and triathlon and was pretty fit at about 155 to 160 pounds. So that's a huge, like that's a significant weight increase though, um, with, that strength training and changing up how they, they went from 140 pounds up to 160 pounds. So 20 pound increase. That's uh, substantial. Like eight kilos, I, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. But after some mistakes dropped an intense ride and substituted a lifting workout, which burned fewer calories, but I increased calories to calorie intake to build muscle. Five weeks ago, I weighed about 171 pounds at about 25% body fat. I'm down to about 157 pounds after five weeks of about 31 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass. I'm thinking about 15% body fat as a good goal, and I'll see where I'm at when I get there. But what do I do when I get to my goal? I increase, or should I increase to like 40 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass? How do I stop losing without just gaining again? So it sounds like keeping track of all that, if you're listening, that was probably really difficult. It's hard for me while reading it. Um, but so sounds like we have a bit of a roller coaster with weight in the sense that it's, it's, it's going mm -hmm. up and then it's going down and, and kind of like these, these big swing approaches that are going on is that, and that's, that's common is it not Kyle. Yes. Uh, he's doing a lot of things intentionally that result in the changes that he's seen. So it makes sense based on what he's doing. There are weight fluctuations, particularly within athletes that are pretty normal. Basically, if you, if you have a change in weight, that is uh, kind of a rule of thumb with athletes that I work with is like, if there's a change of like five or more pounds, uh, basically with like a week or 10 day period, I want to know about it up or down. Because it means something's going on, like like something's happening. And so these timelines make a lot of sense because they're they're on a weak scale and they're in that 10, 10 to 15 pound range. You know, I guess we could go all the way back to 2020 where um, he was saying he was like 155, 160, but still at his highest, it was 171. And that's still in a two-year period or, or no, sorry, in a four-year period, that's not a not a major thing. So yeah, there are weight fluctuations, um, especially with the changes that, that he's explaining, they make sense. He was talking about calories per kilogram of fat free mass. And, and I just want to explain what, what he's talking about there for people that, that don't know. And that's, that's an approach and I'll link down to the video and actually I'll link on screen now and you can check it out. But a video that I did that breaks down, uh, kind of like viewing your, your intake, your nutritional intake through this lens of energy availability. And it's looking at basically what you're trying to do is you're trying to look at the weight that you have that's fat free mass 
And that's basically like crucial needs to be fed mass that you have on your body. And it's prioritizing that. And basically it's a way to get a calorie intake number instead of just doing like, here's your basal metabolic rate and take that in. It's a different way to get a number that you can use to be able to nourish and fuel the necessary components of your body to be able to perform. But a crucial part of this too, is that if you just do that and then you're not taking into account how much you're burning during your workouts or anything else, uh, all that really doesn't matter. You know, um, you're trying to come up with a precise number. And then if you go out and you burn 1700 calories on a ride, uh, that precise number doesn't really matter too much anymore. So, um, so yeah. that's what we're talking about there. And there's, there are windows and different people. There definitely seems like some individual variants here and and Kyle, I'd really like to know your experience with this, with athletes, but typically they say anywhere around 35 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass. At that point, if you're going there or down to like 30 or even below that, you are going to be losing weight. And typically you can go up to 40, 45 to 50, and then you can be maintaining to increasing your weight um, in terms of calories per kilogram of fat-free mass. So anyways, that's the context of what we're looking at. Kyle, have, do you use that though? I mean, as somebody that's actually in the trenches. So doing this, this is, stuff? this is what I wanted. Yeah. 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 This is what I wanted to absolutely talk about when I read this, because look, so one of the reasons why I'm like bumbling a little bit is I'm trying to convert how I do it to what he's to the information that, that Nathan's expressing. Cause I actually don't use this in practice. I think it's, um, I think it's complicated and it's it's hard to like learn. It's hard to put in daily practice. It's hard to make um, until it becomes like learning a second language. This methodology, I think, is kind of difficult. And unless you have somebody that's like making all your meals and doing all those calculations for you, it's a lot of like mental bandwidth that that a lot of people just don't have the capacity to to do. And so then. And in my experience, when something's too complicated, they just kind of give up on it. And and then and then they and usually you just revert back to to whatever it is what, what you were doing. And there's not a lot of intentionality behind that. And so that's where you kind of want to find an approach that that people can use that's not overwhelming. And so I've done, I've tried these types of things. They just don't seem to stick when an athlete's responsible for feeding themselves. Uh, so that's, that's one way to think about it. Unless like, you're just like a sort of like really good with numbers and you really like this sort of stuff. And you, you do want to give that mental, you do want to put that mental workload into it. But, but a lot of times it's not like they don't get the payoff. They're just like, well, I exercise a lot. I'm going to eat what I feel like that sort of thing. So there's a couple of things. I, I'm just going to start mm -hmm. kind of far back with this and to give some context. So I actually don't, use calories very much for me the more usable metric is grams per kilogram body weight because then of macronutrients because then it takes into consideration where the macronutrients are coming from and not just calories and the other thing about this is that when you're thinking about it in terms of calories whether it's calories per fat-free mass or calories based on your basal metabolic rate which I think you did a really good job explaining the difference between those two things because, you know, fat-free mass does require a little bit more calories. It's more metabolically active than fat mass. And so gauging things based on that does make sense, like physiologically. The the issue becomes, uh, it just becomes about calories and calories can come from anywhere and they're not always quality calories or 
They're not always, uh, the macronutrients aren't balanced. And when I say macronutrients, I mean like the components of food that we can access calories out of. So uh, protein, fat, carbohydrates. I know this is going to be very basic for a lot of people, but there is a lot of confusion in people about like that, that caveat there, which was um, available calories. So for example, lettuce is all carbohydrate, but it's not available to us because we don't have the enzyme to break it down. So when we eat a bunch of lettuce, it's zero. But if a cow eats a bunch of lettuce, it has a lot of calories for them. This is why they can eat grass. And if we ate grass, it would not be, we couldn't get calories out of it, right? It's a weird example, but I've used it before. Hopefully it's illustrative enough. So, so you want to think about like, okay, so we have, we need a certain amount of calories. We need a certain amount of each macronutrient. We need to eat nutritious foods that can provide those needs. The issues we run into when we try and do like a calorie heavy calculation and things like that is that when those changes are made, so he's talking about like, for example, 35 calories per kilogram fat-free mass and dropping down to 30. What you're basically doing is talking about a percentage change. And if you drop that across all calories, you can actually risk getting underfed in a gram per kilogram body weight with things like fat and protein. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. So like the data is pretty clear on this. Like we need a certain amount of protein per kilogram body weight, whole body weight. And if you're at 2000 calories and say you break it down of, I, I do my basal metabolic rate is 2000 calories and I want to get uh, 55% of carbs, uh, you, you know, and, and however it works out, 20% protein and, and 15% fat or however that works out. I guess it'd be 25% fat. If you do it like that, um, then if you say, okay, now I'm going to reduce my calories to 1300 calories a day, which 700 calorie deficit is not like crazy for a daily deficit. That's something that isn't going to have a lot of effects of like under eating and things like that. But it can, if the gram per kilogram body weight protein that you need now drops below what actually you need for your total body weight, because the percentage of protein from the lower calorie amount is now less. Yeah. Does that make any sense at all? Okay. Yeah, like if so you just drop it across that, the bar, you could find yourself undernourished. If you drop it across the board, you can find yourself undernourished, and particularly in protein and fat. So doing stuff with just calories gets risky because so many of the calories a person eats are carbs when they're on the bike or when they're trying to recover or when they're trying to carve up. And so if you start cutting calories across the board, but you want to maintain your intake on the bike, now you're starting to risk uh, a deficiency, in, not deficiency, but under optimization of, of protein and fat. So for that reason, uh, what I've kind of naturally settled on in terms of getting people to kind of get these things right is to do grams per kilogram recommendations. And I think that works a lot better because what happens is that you can do a you do grams per kilogram of total body weight for protein and for fat. And those are just set. You get those every day, regardless of training. And the reason why I like to do that in, in the way that I explain, and I, I haven't seen this like in the literature or anything. This is just what I use to explain to people. Is that like, 
fat and protein are long-term nutrients. And what I mean by long-term nutrients is that if, if, you know, Jonathan or Nate, if you guys under ate in protein, let's say I tell you, I'd like you to average over a week, 1.5 grams per kilogram body weight for 24 hours, never going below 1.2. Okay. So, and th those are based on recommendations for athletes and they're, those are like textbook recommendations. Uh, but in, in our experience, they actually work quite well. And so if you guys were at like 0.8 or one consistently, let's say you have one day where you're at 1.0 grams per kilogram body weight, you're not going to feel different the next day or the next day or the next day. But if you were between 0.8 and one gram per kilogram body weight and protein for a month, all of a sudden you'd be like, man, these workouts are coming pretty quick. Like, I don't feel like I'm ready to, you're not bouncing back. Sleep might be a little off. You're hungry all the time, which is a sign that you're not eating enough protein because protein is the most like satiating and, and satisfying macronutrient. And you just, something's a little off, right? And and then it, and if that continues on for six months or a year, now all of a sudden we've you've gotten yourself into a pretty big hole by just sipping away at it. It's like, um, not to be too gruesome, but it's like a slow knife in the back. It's not, whereas like if you go for a ride and you, you try and do an all out threshold ride or you try and do a repeat ride in a fasted state, it's like, it's like very quick. Does that make sense? It's not a, totally. it's, it's a, I know that's very gruesome, but uh, like, I'm just trying to illustrate the point that it's, it's like this slowly developing thing. The problem with that is that like, if, if I sat down with Nate and I was like, Hey man, like, you know, give me your information and let's track this for a couple of weeks and find out what's going on. And now all of a sudden you're right around 0 0.8, uh, 0 0.85, which by the way, is the RDA recommendation for adults to get protein. They, and, but really that number is based off of preventing protein deficiency related diseases, not, not sports optimization or training optimization. So if all of a sudden I find out he's been, you know, get shorting himself for several months and protein, and it lines up with signs of overreaching and overtraining and stuff like that. I can't just say like, all right, order a quarter of a cow and let's sit down and finish this thing. And now your protein metabolism is back. It doesn't work like that. Like protein is one of those things that like, you're not going to feel a difference. If you all of a sudden get 1.5 grams per kilogram the next day, you're not going to feel different the next day. It's going to take several months to come out of that. And you know, roughly it's going to be about the same amount of time it took you to get in that hole to get out of that hole. There's no literature to suggest that because it would just be a really hard study to do. It's just, these are just a combination of my experience plus the science. So we, we just put that number, we put the protein number and the fat number and it's every day and it's non-negotiable. And when you do that, even at twice the amount of what's recommended for protein, 1.6 grams per kilogram body weight, and then fat as low as you can go and still maintain your essential fat. And this is particularly important for females that, that are trying to maintain a monthly menstrual cycle and, and their estrogen levels and all those different types of things. That, that fat, fat does a lot more than just like slow us down or provide slow energy. Um, so the lowest that the, the evidence suggests you can go is one gram per kilogram body weight. And I actually usually go to like 1.2 just to give it a little wiggle room, unless it's like six or eight weeks before, like we got to be on, on this day, at this time, 
Um, but we're not planning on maintaining that body weight for the throughout the whole year. It's just um, it's unattainable. Like, but we need to be there on that day for this event. That makes sense. So, so the the generality of the approach is like you set those proteins and you set those uh, that fat, and when you do the math, that will never add up to what your resting metabolic rate is if you just use those two metrics in grams per kilogram body weight, right? And, and so from there, everything else gets rounded out by carbs. But what's nice about carbs is they are, in contrast to fat and protein, they are a short-term nutrients where like somebody could not eat carbs for six months and, and they wouldn't be performing well. To go to the cow analogy, if you just sat down and ate like a huge bowl of rice and ate 600, somehow forced 600 grams of rice down your uh, carbohydrates, down your face, you're kind of back right away. Like it's there for you right away. And this is, is kind of what's fun about carbohydrates. When you meet an athlete that's like eating pretty well, but they're under fueled in carbohydrates, you know, it, as soon as you tell them like, hey, for the next three meals, eat 100 grams of carbohydrates and then get two gels per hour on the bike. And you know that next workout, they're going to feel awesome. And that that's the fun part about carbohydrates is it comes back like that. Whereas like if you get somebody that... You know, like uh, you you have a female athlete that maybe is uh, oligomenorrheic, so they have an irregular uh, menstrual cycle, they're, they have low body fat, they're not sleeping well, those types of things. It might take six months, eight months, maybe even a year before that person is really feeling like, quote unquote, themselves again, because it takes such a long time to come out of those things. So that's the first thing I thought of when I saw this is like, one, there is some weight fluctuation, which can be normal and guys can get away with it uh, more than girls. It just is what it is. The second thing that came to mind right away is how old is Nathan? Because the younger you are, the easier it is to gain and lose weight. And that becomes more and more challenging over time. The other thing is that becomes more challenging over time that we see is that the same things that people did to lose weight uh, especially if those were drastic, those things don't work in the future after you do them too many times. If we have any like uh, wrestlers or MMA fighter, or combat sports athletes, or those like those types of athletes listening, and even cyclists and runners, a lot of times what you'll say is like, "Well, I used to just like cut out dessert, and then I'd get down to race weight." And it was just like general recommendations like that that would lead to. And then it was like, all of a sudden I hit 30 and it's like cutting out dessert didn't seem to be enough and those sorts of things. And there's, there's a lot of interesting reasons for that. And the other thing too, is that the, the more times you do this, especially if it's really extreme. So you're like, I'm just not going to eat for a week and then I'll lose a bunch of weight. You will do that the first time. The second time, as soon as you get to day two of being severely calorie restricted, the nervous system learns, right? The body keeps the score. And so the central regulator, the CPU, the brain is going to go like, oh, I've seen this before. And that was not good for us. And I'm just, I'm shutting that down right now. And then that's when you get slowing down in metabolism, you get changes in your resting metabolic rate, you start holding on to calories more, you get more protective, and it just becomes harder to lose weight. Typically what people do is they like double down and they do more extreme things to, to get down like that. So that, you know, while Nathan is, maybe you can get away with it at this point, that level of like undulating throughout, it's just going to be harder and harder to get to where you want in the 
what you think is a normal time frame based on historical data that you have for, oh yeah, it only took me five weeks to go from 171 to 157. That's not going to happen next time, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, so, so it's a really straightforward the way he's presenting it, but it's super complex from a physiologic standpoint. So what I would say if I was just, you know, had to like boil this all down, I would say that you can set a goal weight that is higher or lower than where you're at currently, but not by more than five pounds, absolute most 10 pounds, if you're like a young male. Basically, in our practice, like just in my experience, saying like, well, I weigh 180, but I need to race at 165. So I'm going to eat based on calculations for a 165 person. You're really risking sub-optimization, particularly of protein and fat. So what I would say is like, if, if, I, if I had an athlete that was 180 and needed to get down to 165, depending on the time frame, hopefully we'd have enough time. And I would say, well, let's do like 173 or 174, convert that into kg, and then get 1.5 grams per kilogram body weight, 173 for protein, uh, 1.2 grams per kilogram fat at uh, whatever the kg conversion would be for 173 pounds. And then as you lose weight, we then reassess, we lower that again, and, and we do it in like a stepwise fashion like that. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, absolutely. Do, do you have any sort of like um, time frame that you kind of operate on when you're looking at like if an athlete wants to lose five pounds or 10 pounds, what you feel like is sustainable? And I, I imagine there's probably inner individual. Such a cool question. Effects. Yeah, that's the key. So, so some people it happens very quickly. Some people it doesn't. And then for other people, it happens all at once, but not linearly. Uh, whereas other people, it happens linearly. And I think it's really important for people to hear. What what I have found is that it's really important to like have the plan and stick to the plan and trust your body to do what's right for your body. And I know that sounds very ephemeral and like uh, not, not like data-driven and all this type of things, but I've seen it blow up way too many times where people set their own weight loss goals based on what they want and not what their body is willing to give them. And so in that disconnect causes a lot of friction, especially for type A endurance athletes that want the results if they quote unquote put in the work. And so one of the things that I try and uh, reassure people through is by saying like, look, if you're eating healthy, if you're sleeping well, if training quality is going good, those are the most important KPIs. And then if we are getting enough protein and getting enough fat, and it's within a reasonable degree of where you are currently, we're going to then from there manipulate carbohydrates at varying levels of aggressiveness, depending on what time of year it is and, and how much we, can, we think we can get away with. And then we're just going to let your body do its thing. Because like, if you look at like an Olympic podium, now, there's clearly a difference. Like anybody could look at an Olympic podium of the um, power lifters, an Olympic podium of 1500 meter runners, and see, or, or the time trialists, and see that there's clear morphologic differences between those two groups of athletes. That's not what I'm saying. But within an event, if you look at a podium or you look at the top 10, there, there's a lot of different ways you can get to that level of performance. And I think it's really 
I think dangerous is too strong of a word, but I think it's too short-sighted and it causes a lot of people, a lot of unnecessary stress and even like uh, guilt and shame and those types of things. If you start putting numbers on what this person's body is supposed to be doing based on what you think is going to get that out of them. Does that make sense? It's it's like an insult to their talent, quite frankly. And so what we do is we just say, hey, look, do not compare yourself to other people. We're going to do these things that are evidence-based that are going to put your body in the best position to respond in the way it's willing to respond over this time frame. And then we are going to then look at the uh, the real KPIs, which is performances. And are you feeling good? And, where, and I've had actually people say, like, I don't like the way I look. And it's like, well, have you ever um, have you ever trained this well, this consistently? No. How's it, your performance on the bike? Great. How are, your, how are you doing in races? Great. Are you recovering for workouts? Great. Well, then this is where your body wants to be to perform at its best. It We all can't be super ripped. Like, it's this, mm-hmm. that's all genetic, um, or largely genetic. I think too, Kyle, especially people our age, which were, I'm 42 now, we watched cycling in the 90s. And the people were pumped full of steroids and EPO, giant legs with veins yes. and extremely low body fat that is not attainable naturally. And we think that we can get there or that is the ideal body shape because we saw, you know, Lance going flying up hills looking like that. Uh, and yeah, it's just not the case anymore. And you, now you see pro cyclists. There are some like that, but there's a lot of people that are a little bit softer, like Wout Van Art. He would not you, you would have shown him next to like the guys in the 90s and you'd be like, he's not a cyclist. And he's one of the best, greatest cyclists of all time, right? That's a good example. And big, too. Yeah, it's great. I think the analogy the analogy is the same for, like, in Major League Baseball during the steroid era versus not. Like, it's totally different. When you look at before the steroid era and then now, there was, like, this morphology that became the ideal that is totally unattainable without these types of, like, super physiologic inputs. And yeah. The the thing that really breaks my heart, especially from the, and I don't think that's too strong, like, is with the female athletes. There are these like ideals that where people can be performing at a very, very high level and be unhappy in their body. It's, it's, it's insulting to your talent, quite frankly. Like, and so if we can change the narrative, not in the sense of just like, I wouldn't tell Nathan, well, you're 171 now, except that you're special who you are and we don't have to do anything to to change that like if he's producing the same amount of power at 171 as he's producing at 157 he's going to be slower at 171 it's just a fact right so so we can't be afraid to have that conversation but what we should be wary of is and this is what i see more often is somebody saying well i produce four watts per kg at 157 if I was 145 and produce, you know, then I could be at four and a half or five, whatever that conversion would be. I could be higher watts per kg. And, but, but there's a massive assumption that you're going to be able to produce that level of power at that and that you're going to be able to sustain it for a long time and that you're not putting yourself at long-term health risks um, that are, uh, potentially uh, negative long-term health characteristics for like a very short uh, performance gain, a short window of time where there's a performance. 
I when I first started cycling, uh, yeah, I, I didn't have much body mass on me. I just like served a church mission for two years. I just walked and had parasites for two years all day. So like, <laughs> so like I was there was not a whole lot left of me. And when I started cycling, I remember um, I, I really got into it. I didn't have a power meter at first or anything like that. And I remember racing at like 138 pounds, somewhere around there. And I was, I was, you know, I was a climber. I was fast going up hills. <clears throat> but now looking back at that sort of data uh, and just kind of reverse engineering things in terms of knowing my weight and then knowing what the, what equipment I was on and everything else, I think that I was at about 4.2 watts per kilogram. So it wasn't like I was, you know, I was no Tadipoa Gachar or anything like that. You know, <laughs> I yeah. wasn't off the charts. Yeah. Since then, I've been able to yeah. get above five watts per kilogram, but it's been heavier. I've been doing that at at up it to like, you know, at 145 to 150 pounds. That's when I can get to five watts per kilogram. But it I for so long fought that. And I thought that every year when peak racing needed to come around, I needed to lose another five pounds to get down to 140. And that's like what I really held to Which for a long time. Man. Yeah. And, and basically what that resulted in was, and uh, apologies to my wife is me probably being like completely flying off the handle of things and being super emotional when I shouldn't have been, you know, like I'd try to put my sock on and I miss one time and then like the whole day's ruined. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like <laughs> or something silly like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It's so interesting yeah. how, if you were actually in a situation where you starving yourself was literally like saving your family, you probably wouldn't get that frustrated. But because you're like surrounded in this, like in the literature, they call it obesogenic environment is what we live in. And so like when you're surrounded by food all the time and you're you're like willing yourself not to eat it, your brain just, the central nervous system is not like that. And so these are the things that, and you have to take those things into consideration. You don't want to do the short-term things for that put your long-term health at risk. That That is like, if I had like a number one guiding principle, it's like when I talk to young athletes particularly, it's like, look, this approach, yeah, I want you to be as fast as you possibly can, but we are not going to do anything to put your long-term health at risk for that type of flickering moment. Um, and quite frankly, you you often, you might have one of those moments but if you're super talented and you want 10 of those moments over 15 years, it's not going to happen if you if you do these things like this that, that yeah, exactly. So and what would those things be that put your long-term health at risk with a dramatic weight loss or weight change or what would they be? Yeah, so it's interesting. It's a, it's a good question. So, so some of the most obvious ones, like going back to your 90s analogy, would just be doing doing a bunch of drugs, like doing a lot of illegal drugs and those types of things, right? That like, there's a biological price at some point for those types of things. The less obvious thing would be like, if you're 19 or you're 20, you may still be growing. And if you get so lean and cut out all fat, for example, maybe you get as lean as you've ever been and you have one season where you're climbing, but now all of a sudden you're like low in testosterone, you you have chronically high cortisol that eventually goes down. So now you don't have any cortisol to, to get your exercise response up. And like, there's different things that can happen to your metabolism. And I'm, I'm speaking very generally in terms of like cancer risk or type two diabetes risk or those types of things. I don't, I can't like, there's there's no like concrete connection between those two things and what I'm talking about. 
But what I am suggesting is that if you want to be as healthy as you can through the lifespan, um, starving yourself for a significant period of that is is maybe not the best approach. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and okay. and we see it in we see it with uh, hormone levels, and we see it um, in the menstrual cycle, and we see all these different types of things like that. How I understand it is that like, you know, hormones play such an important role in recovery, performance, body composition for the same way, because that's a, a big thing. You're gonna be losing um, fat or muscle. Men can have a lot lower body fat than women. And we can maybe play with that more, although there is a limit where with women, um, what they kind of see sometimes in social media and stuff is lower than they should be and it's going to hurt performance. And you can kind of chase a look um, where and there's, I think what I've seen and what we've heard too, is that there's maybe, this is anecdotal, but like your opinion on this, more range of optimal performance for women, maybe at higher body fat that we've seen in sports then, and then some women are less where maybe in the pro Peloton, they're two or three points different, you know, four points different where with uh pro woman, there may be a bigger range for world-class performance. Is that true? Am I thinking about this right? Uh, and then with women too, the, the hormones are so important for menstrual cycle, which is also important for um for uh, performance. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so the first thing I want to acknowledge is I think we're three dudes sitting around and talking about female uh, nutrition and hormones and those types of things. So I think that's an important acknowledgement to make that we can look at the science of it and we can talk about it like that, but we're not living that experience in, in the same way that, that like a female perspective would have or that sort mm -hmm. of thing. Um, the next thing, though, is I do work with probably 50% female, 50% male athletes is like, uh, and, and it's a, it is something one, you have to be able to openly talk about and, and sort of like those sorts of things. But then the menstrual cycle can be actually used as a really important gauge for how well you're doing nutritionally. It's sometimes like guys sort of miss out on that. They don't get that that data point of am am I regular? Is it normal? Um, and then what's changed in diet and training that may have affected that if there's changes in that menstrual cycle. In the conversations I have with female athletes, um, it's it's more about is there a change in this because that could give us insight into what we're doing from a training and eating standpoint. Now, going back to your other question, I think it's similar for guys as it is girls. So just a perception that now, yes, we we can run guys. I'm saying we. Uh, so males can run with a lower body fat percentage. We can have a lower body fat percentage, and you can be a little bit more aggressive, especially. When you're trying to reduce calories and you're bringing that fat down to that 1.0 grams per kilogram body weight, I still don't like to mess with that too much because when you get too little in fat, um, particularly, you know, fat is the basis for cholesterol. Cholesterol is the basis for steroid hormones. So estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, cortisol, there's like 14 or 15 um, steroid-based hormones that are made from cholesterol. And if we're running too low on fat, we don't have the means to get that. The other thing that I've noticed, and this is largely genetic, a lot of this is genetic, is that some women can run like very, very low body fat, but they require more fat intake on a daily basis. So as long as you meet that turnover need, 
there's not a disruption in their menstrual cycle. There's not a disruption in their training. There's not a disruption in their hormone profile, but they really can't afford to go lower than what they need to get on a daily basis, even if they're quite lean. It's very individual when it comes to this. And, you know, I've had runners where it's like, you miss it, you miss your period by a couple of days. And then we, we adjust by adding an avocado and a handful of Brazilian nuts for the day. And in a month, it's back. I'm painting with pretty broad brushstrokes here, but a number of female athletes that are, and I'm largely speaking through my experience, but I know I keep using that as a, uh, to, to kind of set the stage, but I just want to make sure that's really clear. I'm not speaking like this is, this is a fact for everybody. And two, um, um, sorry, Kyle, to interrupt you, but my understanding is the research on women is so much less than men. I know Stacey Sims talks a lot about this too, but like, um, even though your experience is anecdote, I think everyone would love to hear some of your experience is not really anecdotes like you're, you're a researcher and a professional at this. Um, and then more research is coming now that, that is shifting, but, um, thanks for putting those caveats on too. And we, we feel the same way and it's better to talk about it. I think the not, yeah, I just air, I, I like yeah. to air on that conservative side. Yeah. I like to air yeah. on that conservative side because I'm a lifetime learner. And so like, if you had asked me this five years ago, my answer would be different. And if I said it with absolute certainty, it, it prevents my ability to flip and, and take in new information, you know? So I'm, I'm always super careful about that, especially when I'm speaking in these types of environments. So, and you're right, you know, it's interesting. I was just talking to one of my students about the lack of um, uh, research in these areas, particularly around the female menstrual cycle and those types of things. And there's actually some really good studies back in the 90s about things like VO2 max and lactate threshold. And they used the same subjects at every phase of the cycle and they controlled for diet and they did all these types of things. So it's like, you're really interested in that. I would go back and, and find those papers. Tracy Horton wrote a lot of those papers. Um, and I think that data still holds up. But the main reason I can get for that is that reviewers want you to control for the time of the cycle when the study took place. And it just became this thing where like you couldn't get a paper through unless you did all your tests and uh, data collection during the same phase of the cycle, as opposed to saying, well, let's get as many women as we can and just note what phase of the cycle they're in. I'd rather take that approach. Like let's test everybody when they're available because it's really hard to get human subjects. Because honestly, when you're doing human subjects stuff, and this is another like tangent, but you have to take into consideration the amount of variables that are just uncontrollable. The person could be having a bad day. They could have not gotten a great night of sleep. You know, you put all this stuff in there, like we told them to go to bed at the same time of day and not change their exercise routine. But if they had a fight with their partner or significant other or something like that, or something happened and they show up, that can impact the results of your study. And so you have to take those things into consideration. And for, for a lot of people, it's frustrating. For me, I think it's really fun and interesting to think about those aspects when you're doing this. But it does change how you may approach things. And so for the for people that are doing research, you know, that are based in in uh and you're really interested in doing it in female athletes, I would say get as much information as you can as opposed to trying to control every single little thing. Having said that, when you're working with elites, particularly uh, you really, really have to do it on an individual basis. It's very clear when someone has talent, you have to take care of that. Like such a, it's such a precious thing when, when somebody is talented and you, 
you have to be really careful about wanting it all within the first two years of their career. Um, mm -hmm. Because it just like you're, you're doing that talent disservice. And especially when you put them into these, these big ups and downs and these wild fluctuations, and now we're going to add this and now we're going to do that. And we're just going to assume that talent is always going to be there. And we're just going to, and you take it for granted and you can't do that. And so what I would say is just like, a, it's, it's very like easy and empowering, but you sort of embrace who you are, make sure you're getting enough protein, make sure you're getting enough fat. You can try and get experiment. You can try and say like, if I could maintain my power and I could lose some weight, that'd be really cool. And you can try it, but you have to try it in a way that isn't going to backfire and put you into overtraining and overreaching and those types of things. You have to put your body in a position where it wants to get down to that. And that might take three years. Like you don't get to decide. You can't decide like, well, I'm, I'm 145 right now. And my first race is in eight weeks. I need to be 140. I'm just going to do all this crazy stuff. It will completely disrupt your life. and probably backfire from a performance standpoint. What you would say is like, I, I'm going to lower my grams per kilogram body weight from, from 145 to 140. I mean, still take my recovery drink. I'm going to still eat on my bike. I'm going to still modulate carbs depending on what workouts I have coming out and what workouts I'm coming out of. And then I'm just going to let my body and my talent do its thing. And that's been the thing that has worked the best for us. Mm. Does that, that make sense? Yeah. It makes you know, sense. I know. Nate, yeah. you got yeah. um, Two with the, so most people listening here aren't a Kate Courtney or Keegan Swenson, right? Like you're like, you know, you're doing talent disservice, but we all have our individual talent, right? And where yeah. our like potential is. 100%. And what we've said, is, I know, but like I'm thinking to myself, cause you know, it's been, it's been a journey and uh, <laughs> I've done the thing where I've kind of like tried to, to chase a number on the scale and I might lose some weight and keep the power the same. But the, the, you know, I, I was reading this question from Nathan and I was at 23% body fat before and I got down to eight, but the way that I did it was I focused on consistency and volume and doing the, the protein targets, the carbs and sleep and sleep is a huge one for body composition. And yes. then I was able yes. to do more workouts and it just like slowly came off over weeks and weeks where you might not even notice it. And there's also, there's a DEXA time where I lost seven pounds of fat and gained four pounds of muscle. This is when I was about my worst, like, you know, yeah. I was like 205 pounds, 23% exactly. body fat. And if I just would have been chasing the number, I would have been so discouraged. Right. But, uh, I'm the Dexa. Thank goodness for that. That helped me. But I think there's something to say for us normal people, exactly. uh, just focus on that kind of volume that you can recover from and then be consistent and don't too, do too much. You know, we, we have that, Kyle, you might know about this, but we have this feature called red light green light, which is supposed to predict fatigue um, based on your past history so that you you limit your training before you get into the hole. You could do the, you could do the workout that day, yeah. but we don't want to. And what we've seen and I've seen on the forum is, um, and I've done this myself too, you say like rush it, you want it all in two years. I really want it in two weeks. And I switch from three <laughs> days a week to six days yeah. per week to like two hours per day. First two weeks feel amazing. And this feature is going, you should yeah. slow down. And I'm like, I... I've trained perfectly this this first two weeks, and I think that Probably. patience amount because you'll have some changes. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So there, there's multiple things here that I, that I want to unpack. I'm really glad you brought up the example and using you as an like 
yeah, I think it's it's relatable. And so one of the most undervalued things in endurance sports is consistency. Uh, so I talked to, um, if, if I do like a community presentation to high school or, or college athletes or those sorts of things, they, they see things in terms of seasons. And so that, and when the season is over, then it's off. And if you go from like being totally locked in for a couple months and then totally like not doing anything for a couple weeks, you will not gain it with consistency. The other thing, your point, Nate, is that if you go from three days a week to six days a week and, and you will see some change early on, but if whatever that change is, isn't sustainable, then it's not really a change. And that's the thing that happens a lot with, you know, everybody is, is now savvy enough to know that like diets are temporary. That's why they call it a diet, you know, those sorts of things. But the reality of that is like, if you're thinking about making a change in your food intake and your nutritional approach, it's, if you if you do that in a way that can't be sustained, like think about this for the rest of your life. Like, can I do this for the rest of my life? Like those base questions are literally like, then you may want to really question whether or not you're going to make this change or not. This is why like time-restricted feeding, I think is really difficult. And, and the literature shows this. It's really hard for people to adhere to yeah, they can do it for like six months when they're doing a study. But if you ask somebody, did you maintain this for seven years? Yeah. They they can't. And Keto it's too. because like, yeah, it has no wiggle room for holidays, birthdays, social events, life events, the way you may feel on a certain day. I mean, what happens if like, if I only eat between 12 and six every day, but then uh, my buddy and I want to go climb and ski Mount Hood and we have to start at three in the morning. Like, what do you do in those circumstances? It's not adaptable. And then I'm a failure because I ate at, I ate uh, pancakes in the parking lot of Timberline Lodge at 4 a.m. And it wasn't 12. It, it, you see what I'm saying? And when you get these people that are very regimented, which a lot of endurance athletes are, like, then you you have these, yeah, you're, you're now a failure because you didn't stick to this. And so- you want to be really careful and flex, not flexible in a way that's like soft and just like, I accept anything. I'm just going to eat whatever I want, whenever I want. But if you have a sustainable plan, what you end up doing is eating what you're supposed to eat, not supposed to eat, but you, you eat what you generally is in line with your overall goals and you're able to maintain that consistently. And so there isn't like this, you know, for Nathan, there isn't like this magical change where it's going to be. I'm going to switch from 35 and then I'm going to go to 30 and then I'm going to go back to 40. And it's all going to be, what I would say is like, where do you feel the best on the bike right now? And if it's like, I don't know, I don't think I've ever peaked as like a cyclist or a runner or, or a triathlete. Like, I don't think I've ever peaked. It's like, all right, well, let's just take stock of where you are right now. We'll go five pounds down from that. We'll make sure you're getting enough protein. We'll make sure you're getting enough fat. We'll make sure you're eating 100 grams of carbohydrates and four meals leading up to big workouts, that you're modulating carbohydrates coming out of workouts, and we're going to let your body do its thing. And if you're willing to commit to that, which is very sustainable, 
um, then we're going to let your body do its thing. And we're not going to set the, what I think are kind of random goals about like, I want X amount of body fat or X amount of fat-free mass. We're just going to let your body do its thing. And, and I think, you know, Nathan, you know, Nate, you gave a really good example because in a lot of ways you had, you, you had a lottery ticket. You didn't know you had. Because you went on this journey of I'm 23% body fat, I want to be less than 10% body fat. And you were actually genetically capable of achieving that with certain uh, with certain approaches. And you actually took those certain approaches. And so that to me is like, you got lucky on a lot of different levels. I, no, I mean, no. I know you were really, um, no, no. you were intentional about it. Yeah. But, but like, if your body was just like, if your genetics said, I'm not going below 11th and I'm actually going to make you feel miserable, so miserable that you quit biking to keep you above 11%. And then all of a sudden, now you don't bike and you're a failure because you couldn't get down to 8% body fat. And it goes back to that, that your comment about gotcha and, and these different types of people. When you see athletes that that are taking super physiologic aren't, aren't using super physiologic means of then what you see is over years you see progression that actually makes sense based on consistency mm. yeah I, I think too that you know there's i'm i am oh, this is going to cause comments in youtube please talk about this you know <laughs> calorie, calories and calories out as, as far as a system and weight weight loss not fat is a thing but what you just said about having um, predisposed genetic like levels of body fat and where you're at and having your body say, no, this is horrible and you're going to feel horrible and you're going to have the biggest cravings and it's going to be extremely hard to get down. Um, that stuff's totally right. And they can, they both live together. They're both true. And I think that 100%. we talk about with people about doing um, focus up process goals rather than outcome goals. Because you can't choose the outcome if you're going to win the race or if you're going to hit a certain body fat, right? But you can choose that I'm going to get um, 1.5 to 2 grams per protein um, per kilogram body weight. Um, let me actually, I'm going to go through some of the things that I've heard that are important yeah, yeah, yeah. for um, performance and for yeah. weight loss. Yeah. Um, one is protein intake. And I think you said when you're training, do you like 1.5 yeah. grams per kilogram? Yeah, this is my thought process through this. We'll, um, we'll just get right under the hood with it. So. So basically what, what the research says in really hard training athletes, but I also think this is beneficial in re recreationally active athletes, even like walkers, all the way up to the age groupers, all the way up to through the categories that this applies. Protein, protein can apply here. So what the recommendation is, is that strength athletes can go to 2 to 2.5 grams per kilogram body weight. There have actually been a few studies looking at endurance athletes with higher amounts of protein intake daily, all the way up to three grams per kilogram body weight. There was actually a study, it was either in swimmers or rowers. Um, and I've tried this with a few people. It's just absolutely unsustainable. You can't eat that much. It's miserable trying to eat that much. And what most of the evidence suggests is that it's very, very marginal gains, if any gains at all, over two. And that holds true for like really what they say is um, 1.2 to 2 for a hard training endurance athlete. 
I don't love being at either extreme when I make sort of recommendations. So what I would typically say is like, I'm going to give you a low daily protein and a high daily protein. Your low will be 1.4, your high will be 1.8. And if you're somewhere in that range every day, we're doing fine with protein. So I just want to, I want to say this based on the, the comment that you made earlier, Nate, about the calories in, the calories out. If that were true, we could predict weight loss every single time in every single person in, in every single situation. Because you, everyone's heard this saying that 3,500 calories is a pound. And if you reduce your caloric intake by 500 calories a day, then you lose one pound a week. Well, every single person listening to this podcast fluctuates three to five pounds per day just based on water their glycogen. fed state, their fasted state, their water, glycogen, all these different types of things, right? So, so if you do weigh yourself, I would use weight as a indicator, not as a metric. That's super important. You can't say, I want to be X weight. You can't. I would not advise saying, you want to be X weight. I would say, I'm going to eat for this goal weight that is within five pounds of where I want to be or where I am at the moment. And then I'm going to get between 1.2 and 1.8 grams per kilogram body weight per day. And if it's the shoulder season or if it's base training phase for fat, it's going to be 1.2 to like 1.3 or 1.4. And if it's like I have six weeks until world championships and I got it, or I have six weeks until the, the Baker classic and I'm gonna, and I really want to throw down or the Breck epic. That's a, that's a great one for like, that's a lot. That's a goal for a lot of like high level cat one and, and age groupers. Right. So, so I get a lot of calls around, you know, times <laughs> about six, six to eight weeks out from Breck Epic, I get I start getting some calls. And so under those circumstances, yeah, you can go to one to 1.1 grams per kilogram fat, but man, you better be careful because you are absolutely riding a line and you better be getting enough overall calories. You better be eating enough on the bike and you better be taking your recovery drink and you better be modulating carbohydrates effectively depending on what workouts you have coming up or what workout you're leaving from. That's sort of the process. And, and if you do that, I'll have athletes that are 145, 145, 145, and then all of a sudden one morning they step on the scale and they're 141 and it's a week before the race. And the less they've been worrying about it, this is purely anecdotal, but the more people worry about losing weight, the less, the harder it is for them to lose weight. Oh. Like I'm convinced that I don't know how Cortisol. to study this, Stress. but I'm convinced yeah. that there is a there's a central governor that feel that senses that threat of like I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this. And and the body says, What what is this threat that we're facing? I'm locking things down. And uh yeah, so so the less people worry about it, and that's why you set these metrics like Eating 1.2 grams per kilogram body weight for my goal weight that's within five pounds of my current weight is something I can do every day. And that's a goal. The weight is an indicator. It's not a goal. It's not a metric. Kyle, there's, I, I, and I want to be cognizant of your time. I don't want to take up too much, but there's two main topics yeah, that yeah. I want to get no, into good. here. Like the first one, I want to talk about fat in particular. Wait, John, um, can I ask a couple more questions about weight loss things? I'll, I'll swear I'll go fast. 
on yeah, the, on the yeah. rest of that question. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, that okay, but yeah, I feel like I got yeah. off track and I didn't, I feel like I got off track and didn't end up answering your, no, no. I don't know so if this is a protein. It's amazing. Protein 1.2 to 1.8 around there. Uh, side note too, on those studies where they do like for weight training, you know, two to 2.2 and they go higher 2.5. You know, they report like there's like a band of where most people do, but there are some outliers like that. <laughs> some people in the study did eat three and had this huge increase. And I'm like, who are those people yes. and what are those genetics? And I want to know that's a side note, but that's crazy. And that's yeah. kind of the individuality of if yeah. you are eating, if you do feel better outside of these ranges, like maybe uh, do that because the studies are look at the actual results sometimes rather than the actual number they put. And it's really interesting. Um, the other one that I heard and just with, look at whether or not they actually look at whether or not they actually, uh, display the individual response. Like mm -hmm. a lot of times, like they'll, they won't have a significant P value, but you look at the, you look at the individual responsiveness and if they have multiple panels, you want to know if the same, the same dot on each panel was the same person. Because you can start to look at, oh, did they have a response in this area and not this area or those types of things? So mm -hmm. that's just when you're looking at these papers, it's something to really yeah. good point. Um, Too many sidetracks. So <laughs> during um, during a calorie deficit too, uh, protein is very important to maintain so that you do maintain to your, uh, you hold on to your muscle mass. Because if you lose, if you don't eat enough protein, it's more likely than to lose muscle mass. Is that, is that true too? Yeah, I'm glad we brought this up. There's a, there's a couple of things that I think are just like, I just want to hit on really quickly. One is that when you train, you induce a negative protein balance. When you eat after training and over the next like 24 to 48, even up to 72 hours, the food that you're eating is going into the positive protein balance response that has to be greater than the protein detriment that you incurred if you want an adaptation. So like if you're looking at a straight line here and the deficit goes to two, then the, the positive part has to go to three if you want to gain, if, if you sense. want an adaptation from that workout. Okay. So the think of somebody has that to be like, positive, right? Yeah. For those it that has to listening. be positive under those circumstances and the work, the work, induces the negative side of it. Mm -hmm. So what you're trying to do in the post-exercise state is maximize that positive side of it so that you can get the most net adaptation in your response from a physiologic standpoint. Let's just use an example of like, I'm going to uh, under-eat protein or not eat at all, and I'm going to run every day. You, or I'm going to lift every day, let's say. You will, you will get weaker even though you're lifting a lot because you're never you're you're never making up for the deficit that you incur when you are lifting with a positive adaptation you have to have nutrition to get the adaptation uh you can you can start really like thinking about the evolutionary basis for that and like why would we exert effort that broke us down but didn't result in uh, achieving the nutrients that we should be using our energy to hunt down and all these different types of things, right? So so that's the first point is that you're you're incurring a negative sort of protein balance and you want to get a positive protein balance that goes above what you incur. This is why overtraining is not good. Like you don't have to kill yourself every day because it's too much of a breakdown and it's impossible to get that 
adaptation. I have this conversation a lot about threshold. You guys will appreciate this. I have this conversation a lot about threshold training where um, people are like, well, it was the last one. And I really wanted to go for it. And it's like, if I, if my goal is to bench press 150 pounds, I don't start with 180. Like the, the whole thing with threshold work is you go, we, our body super compensates when we recover from a stimulus. So you put it right at that edge and then you get the super compensation, you get the benefit. But if you go over that edge, you've now created a new stimulus that you're adapting. So, so the point is, is that you have to get up to that positive thing. Now, here's what's really cool about this is that uh, there's these two guys that publish a lot of papers on protein balance and stuff like that. Their names are Tipton Ferrando. They're like, I'm like a fanboy of Tipton Ferrando. You can go look at their papers. But they wrote this really cool paper a couple of years ago that I use in my classes um, where they basically said there's three ways that, that athletes or, or people that are training, a lot of this has to do with strength training, but there's three ways that you that you can add protein. You can, as training goes on, say over a 24-week period, you can get better at not having as much uh, detriment in protein breakdown and your protein synthesis in the post-exercise state could stay the same. And your adaptations will go up because now you're in shape and the work is causing less damage, but you're recovering at the same rate. The second possibility is you still incur the same amount of damage because, uh, but you get better at synthesizing protein in the post-exercise state and you create a larger difference there. And that's how you accrue changes. Or uh, option C, which is what they think, and it's also what I think um, is actually what's happening, is you incur the same amount of damage and the same amount of synthesis. And when you quote unquote get into shape, it's the accumulation of individual workouts, the changes that occur in individual workouts. And each one of those workouts contributes to the found to the building in to the same degree. You don't because when you increase your ability to stress the system, then you have just the same amount of you you have a greater stimulus, but you're you have a greater capacity. And so it all works out like this. And this is where the consistency piece comes into it to, to tie it all together. Because if you are training intentionally every day, it's way better to have B's and B pluses. We talk about this all the time. This time of year, we want B's and B pluses and no mistakes. Well, I, I don't that. want one A workout a week and you know one or two A workouts a week. And then the rest of your week is, I want all B's and B pluses. You just... I'm getting enough protein. I'm getting enough fat. I've carved up enough. I'm taking care of my body. I'm getting sleep. Uh, hormones are feeling good. Sleep is good. There's no signs of overtraining and the numbers are going up. That means you're accumulating training adaptations, utilizing the body's natural ability to do super compensation, which is our evolutionary hack. We do something. When we respond to it, we, the response overdoes it and then we get better. And different people have different genetic ceilings for that ability. Uh, it's just the way it is. And so uh, you, what you do is you put yourself in a position to realize your genetic potential and, and not these like sort of, and it may be that, and we've all heard these stories like, I didn't touch a bike until I was in high school and now I'm on the world tour team. 
well, you're just genetically different than somebody that started riding bikes when they were two years old and are not on a world team. But that doesn't mean that person that is loves bikes, loves riding, loves training, loves being intentional, can't fulfill whatever it is they're genetically capable of fulfilling. For sure. Um, yeah. So, so I just, that, that, that thing unlocked so much for me in terms of going the importance of consistency and not thinking that doing more was the way to progress. You don't get more out of it. You're just changing the stimulus and you're creating more negative protein balance. And it just becomes harder to recover from and get those adaptations. And when you're very consistent and intentional and you stress the system in the right way, you get the benefit of that. And we do that as humans. You're like uh, selling our new system, red light, green light, because what happens is people can have the, what we call a red day, a yellow day, meaning, hey, you need to take it easy. A red day is like you've done something big that's not conducive with your training history and you need to rest and you can still do a workout on that oh, red day. You can do a big, a big red day. Um, side note, by the way, Keegan doesn't have red days, barely like there's a couple early yeah. season. He has some yellows and he goes easy on the yellows. It's really interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, they yeah. talk about consistency. Um, this is his talent though. Like mm -hmm. this is his talent though, right? Like he yeah. is everything when in, uh, he's talked about this publicly, so it's not like secret or anything, but he just said, when I started riding bikes more, the more I ride bikes, the better I get. And it doesn't seem to be a ceiling to it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, sure. Well, that's, that's yeah. not normal. Yeah. Uh, but he, um, uh, what you said about it is you have the, the deficit, right? And then if you go too low into it, you can't recover. And I think that's when you, you get slower, you get angry. Um, and then you start to take more time off or you get burnt out or something like that. And then, sorry, John, I have one more question. So we got the protein. Um, the other one is, uh, sleep for in a calorie deficit. I saw a study where it had some people sleep like four hours per night and others like nine and the four, they both bought the calories controlled. They both lost the same amount of weight, but the people that slept like four hours lost almost all muscle and the people who slept like nine yeah. yeah isn't that crazy yeah can you can you talk about that a little yeah. bit yeah yeah i actually use this study in, in my sports and nutrition class okay. when we get to the part about weight optimization and so college students this is a really good study, study to go and look at and it's uh yeah exactly <laughs> so so this is a cool study to look at because uh, the methodology in the study that you're referring to and i wish i could remember the authors and give them credit um I don't know, maybe you guys can look it up afterward and, and post it. But the, the cool thing about that study is that was over like a two-week period in everything that they, I think I'm getting this right, everything that they ate, they were fed by the, the investigators and they slept at a sleep lab every night for those two weeks. So it was really, really controlled compared to other studies. And they looked at a lot of variables that are not easy to look at. So they really did a nice job with that study design. And what they found was, I think it was a five hour group and an eight and a half hour group or an eight hour group. And what they found was that the sufficient sleep, they both lost the same amount of weight, but the change in body composition was completely different. And the people that were uh, lacking sleep lost a lot of fat free mass and the people that didn't lost mostly fat. We don't know what the mechanism of that is, but just the fact that they did that study in such a controlled and such an elegant way gives us all kinds of new targets mechanistically to start to look at. Um, I don't do this type of work anymore, but somebody out there that is 
you can start looking at those types of things now because you have this phenomenon that we see, but we don't necessarily understand the mechanism behind that. And so is that uh, it has to be something with the hormone cycles throughout the night and making sure those fully play out over eight to nine hours as opposed to interrupting them at four or five hours. It's a very cool study. Right. So just it, yeah, so people, sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Sleep is huge. And this is the other thing, though, is that sleep is also highly individual. So what's cool about that study is that they actually had a group response given a mixed group of people that they got. Because a lot of times you get people that there are just a certain number, there's a certain amount of people that don't need a lot of sleep. And it is not fair because <laughs> they can sleep three to four hours a night, still train really hard, still recover really well, and they just get like four extra hours in the day. And then there's other people that need like nine to 10 hours of sleep plus a 90 minute nap each day. And it's, you know, it's beyond the scope of like this current conversation, it's something maybe we wanna talk about in the future. But just in general, if you have good sleep hygiene, that's the, that's the first thing is like, do you have a good pre-bedtime routine? Are you avoiding screens? Are you coming down in a, and then when you feel tired, do you actually go to bed? And then uh, do you go to bed around the same time? Do you get up at the same time? And how's your quality of sleep? And if I'm sure everybody that listens to this is, is looking at their whoop or their aura or their Apple watch or whatever, there's a lot of insight that you can get from those things, especially when you start looking at resting heart rate and HRV and then you know, the new Apple Watch is crazy. It does like, and I know the Aura Ring and the Whoop do this as well, where they you can get information about deep sleep and light sleep and all these different types of things. And it really does change depending on, um, and you'll see if you overreach, if you, if you have one of those yellow days or you have one of those red days, look at your sleep quality. Um, and it's nothing to get mad about. You look at it and you have to make an adjustment. The problem is, is uh, if you have three red days a week and that's all you're training, it's, you're never going to get to where you want to get if you have had a bunch of greens and yellows and, and you just put that consistent over a longer period of time. For that sleep thing, I don't, sorry, John, there's this, uh, okay. another really it's great, great study <laughs> yeah. that I saw that, um, it talked, it had people sleep, like be time in bed, like eight, six, four, or like no hours. Right. And then it was doing a, um, it was a test on like attentiveness or some kind of like performance response with your brain. And, everyone's performance got worse. It was like for two weeks, every night, even the eight hours, because they said they didn't actually get eight hours because it was time in bed. But what the interesting part was the yeah. people who had six hours, like halfway through, they thought they plateaued and they thought they got used to it, but they didn't get used to it. Their performance kept getting so bad. <laughs> and after two weeks, yeah. it was as bad as the people who didn't sleep at all. Like the people who didn't sleep, like they could only do two nights in a row, yeah. but they were at the same performance yeah. level as the people that didn't sleep for one night. So I would, I would argue to that thing and those people that, and I know them too. They're like, they, they pride themselves. They, t they will tell you it's like CrossFitters. Yeah. I sleep five hours per night, <laughs> but they could probably do so much better if they did sleep more, um, yeah. in their life. And just because they are performing well, doesn't mean it's opera. We had to talk about this before, just because pro cyclists did it for a while. doesn't mean it's the right way. And just because they're doing amazing, they might have yeah. amazing genetics to do yeah. even better. What's interesting is like, it, it's. It's really cool when you get people starting to think like, what if that's not how I respond? Or let me test that theory. Like if, if, I, if I wake up at 4 a.m. every day and I do it long enough, I'll get used to it. Mm. Uh, 
that's one I don't want people to necessarily test. But if you did, and then you got to it, and let's just say through pure force of will, and you said, this is the way I operate, this is what I've done, I've done it for years, I get up at 4am, and it works for me, and I've gotten used to it. It's a really difficult thing for people to say, what if I've been doing this not the right way? Is that too much of a like your whole life structure and identity and those types of things would would it, it would threaten that too much to even try. But what if you were like, you know what, I'm going to see what what happens if I can break through this plateau that I've been on for the last year and a half if I sleep 10 hours. And that's my number one goal for, for the next six weeks or next eight weeks. I'm going to see what happens there. I think it's really cool. Like, you don't want to do that too often. You know, I was having this conversation with a coach and he was saying like, when I was younger, if someone was really close to like uh, making a podium or, or making a world team or making a, you know, something like if they were really close to that breakthrough, my thought when I was younger was we're doing something wrong. I need to implement a bunch of changes so we can get over that hump. And he's like, in actuality, what I've learned through experience and a lot of like just close, close calls is that when you start getting closer, it's a sign that what you're doing is right. And you have to start asking yourself, mm. how can I do the things I'm doing better? Not what can I go back and do differently this year? That's so good. And I've seen this. I've seen this before where people say like, well, I was close. And so I have this in the barn and I have that in the barn. So now I'm going to try and develop this thing that I kind of suck at because that's going to unlock. And it doesn't, your total performance does not add up in that additive sense. You have to triple down on the things you're really good at and the things you know you're good at. You have to become reasonable at the things you're bad at. And then you have to apply consistency and that level of dedication. And that's where you start getting those breakthroughs. And so you don't want to go back to the drawing board every time you get close. You want to think like, hey, that was actually sustainable. That was a really good buildup. I'm healthy and I'm closer to my goal than I've ever been. So this isn't me needing to like, you know, just start like, broadcasting David Goggins through my house all <laughs> 24 hours a day so that I could be Poor like, kids. this isn't, this, 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 exactly. these things are actually, we're going in the right direction. We just need to get better at the things that we know we can get better at. And that's when you make those, that's when you start to have those breakthroughs. That's a great point to leave off on. I feel like Kyle, um, if for athletes, again, we're talking about here, how to lose weight and how to maintain that weight loss and everything else. And I feel like we covered so many things in a really like deep and yeah, also practical way. It's awesome. <laughs> so Kyle, uh, huge thanks for coming on here. One of your athletes, Josh Kerr, uh, on the Brooks beast just set a world record time in the indoor. I think it was what the two, did. 2k or 800 was the, I how can't good remember. does that feel? So it was two miles. Two miles so it was, was a two it. mile. It, it was an indoor two mile. The previous record I think was like, we know three, 803.6 and he ran eight flat point four. <laughs> and so, how good does that feel, Kyle, um, when your athletes yeah. do that sort of thing? Oh, uh, you're putting me in an awkward position, Nate, because you can say I, good. Uh, you're part of a team. You, you can be keep like, this in. You're proud. This is, not, uh, this is not my strong suit. So, I'll tell you this when, when he did that, I, 
I just texted him one word and it said, yup, and had a period. <laughs> That's all I said. It was just like, and, and he just said, appreciate you. And like, that was enough. Yeah. He's, we can talk more about if you want to, his story is just so cool. And he just like talking about like consistency, go look at his world finishes from the time going back to like 2018 and look at the trajectory. It just like, it just makes sense. And that's a testament to Josh. It's a testament to coach Danny. Um, I'm super privileged to have played a role in that progression. Um, and so when these, when these big things start falling or, or start happening, it's just, it, it's just really cool. Like it, it, there's nobody that deserves it more than Josh. He's super talented, but he also does things the right way. Um, if you guys don't know him, start following him, go check out his, uh, kind of emergence and growth. And he's been on a million different podcasts over the last six months. Cause he won the 1500 meter world championship last year. Mm -hmm. And, um, and he's trying to do something people don't, and, and he's talked openly about this. This isn't inside baseball. It like, he's talked openly about, um, you know, that oftentimes when people get to the top, it's sort of now what, and he stayed really humble and really motivated. And it's very cool to see him on form, um, this early, I mean, off a world championship. So cool. Way to go. It's awesome. Man, I feel good about it. Yeah, <laughs> as you should. No, I'm glad. I wanted to take yeah. time to so celebrate So thanks for that. giving him a shout out. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And uh, we had uh, the Beast had an awesome uh, indoor U.S. championship. We had uh, two, um, we, we had a second. So we had an 800 meter make the team, 800 meter runner make the team, uh, two thirds, a fourth, and a fifth. So we have five top fives as a team. Uh, at national championship. So across distances from 300 to 3000 meters. So it's cool. It's a testament yeah. to their team, their squad, coach Danny, our approach. So it's fun. And road season's getting, and the started. biking really hasn't gotten going, right? It's getting yeah. there. Yeah. Cross country, Olympic gravel, everything's starting up. So it's going to be a good year for good year to be caught. Yeah. So, uh, well, thanks everybody. I like this. Uh, I like this Brazil date that's coming up. That's a cool sort of early season treat for XEL. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm excited, excited for, for it. that. That'll be great. Uh, if any of you want, you can longest outro ever. That's right. I'll put Kyle's uh, Instagram down below <laughs> and you'll be able to check him out there. Yeah, yeah. And if you have questions or anything else that you'd like to ask us here on the ask a cycling coach podcast, you can do so at trainroadcom slash podcast. As Nate mentioned, new features that you can use that are, we do, we've done a lot of things here at trainer road over the past 12 years, I think, uh, that we've, that I've been with trainer road, but I think that the things that we're doing now with AI FCP detection, everything else, we're entering new ground. Like it hasn't been done before, uh, with red light, green light and everything else. It's really exciting stuff. So go sign up for it. Go check it out. If you've been waiting, this is your sign. We'll talk to you next time. Take care. Bye-bye. Welcome to the podcast dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. The Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. Today, we have Dr. Kyle Pfaffenbach back with us from Eastern Oregon University. And we're yeah. going to answer some of the... Oh, yeah, yeah yet again. <laughs> Stoked to have you, Kyle. It's going to be great. Well, uh, we are Last time, I think that we had like seven questions to get to, and we got, to, we got through one. It was really good. So uh, we're going to get to question two this week. <laughs> uh, these questions are submitted at trainerroad.com slash podcast. This first one comes from Nathan. Uh, he says, 
Hey, everybody. I just listened to the goal-setting podcast and I need help. Coach Jonathan described eating 35 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass, then dropping to 30 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass, but then what? I made some training changes last year that resulted in me gaining weight, not in a good way. Mountain biking is my thing. It's at my fastest, I was probably about 140 pounds and over four watts per kilogram in October of 2020, and probably about 13% body fat. I added weightlifting and creatine and triathlon and was pretty fit at about 155 to 160 pounds. So that's a huge, like that's a significant weight increase though, um, with that strength training and changing up how they, they went from 140 pounds up to 160 pounds. So 20 pound increase. That's uh, substantial. Like eight kilos, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. But after some mistakes, dropped an intense ride and substituted a lifting workout, which burned fewer calories, but I increased calories to calorie intake to build muscle. Five weeks ago, I weighed about 171 pounds at about 25% body fat. I'm down to about 157 pounds after five weeks of about 31 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass. I'm thinking about 15% body fat as a good goal, and I'll see where I'm at when I get there. But what do I do when I get to my goal? I increase, or should I increase to like 40 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass? How do I stop losing without just gaining again? So it sounds like keeping track of all that, if you're listening to that, was probably really difficult. It's hard for me while reading it. Um, but it so, sounds like we have a bit of a roller coaster with weight in the sense that it's 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 going mm-hmm. up and then it's going down and and kind of like these these big swing approaches that are going on. Is that, And that's that's common, is it not, Kyle? Yes. Um, he's doing a lot of things intentionally that result in the changes that he's seeing. So it makes sense based on what he's doing. There are weight fluctuations, particularly within athletes that are pretty normal. Basically, if you, if you have a change in weight, that is uh, kind of a rule of thumb with athletes that I work with is like, if there's a change of like five or more pounds, uh, basically with like a week or 10 day period, I want to know about it up or down. Because it means something's going on, like like something's happening. And so these timelines make a lot of sense because they're they're on a week scale and they're in that 10, 10 to 15 pound range. You know, I guess we could go all the way back to 2020 where um, he was saying he was like 155, 160, but still at his highest, it was 171. And that's still in a two-year period or, or no, sorry, in a four-year period, that's not a... Not a major thing. So yeah, there are weight fluctuations, um, especially with the changes that that he's explaining. They make sense. He was talking about calories per kilogram of fat-free mass, and and I just want to explain what what he's talking about there for people that that don't know. And that's that's an approach, and I'll link down to the video. And actually, I'll link on screen now, and you can check it out. But a video that I did that breaks down uh, kind of like viewing your your intake, your nutritional intake through this lens of energy availability, and it's looking at basically what you're trying to do is you're trying to look at the weight that you have that's fat free mass, and that's basically like crucial needs to be fed mass that you have on your body, and it's prioritizing that, and basically it's a way to get a calorie intake number, instead of just doing like, here's your basal metabolic rate and take that in. It's a different way to get a number that you can use to be able to nourish and fuel the necessary components of your body to be able to perform. But a crucial part of this too, is that if you just do that, and then you're not taking into account how much you're burning during your workouts or anything else, uh, all that really doesn't matter. 
you know, um, you're trying to come up with a precise number. And then if you go out and you burn 1700 calories on a ride, uh, that precise number doesn't really matter too much anymore. So, um, so that's what we're talking about there. And there's, there are windows and different people. There definitely seems like some individual variants here and and Kyle, I'd really like to know your experience with this, with athletes, but typically they say anywhere around 35 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass. At that point, if you're going there or down to like 30 or even below that, you are going to be losing weight. And typically you can go up to 40, 45 to 50, and then you can be maintaining to increasing your weight um, in terms of calories per kilogram of fat-free mass. So anyways, that's the context of what we're looking at. Kyle, have, do you use that though? I mean, is somebody that's actually in the trenches. So doing this, this is, stuff? this is what I wanted. Yeah. 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 This is what I wanted to actually talk about when I read this, because look, so one of the reasons why I'm like bumbling a little bit is I'm trying to convert how I do it to what he's to the information that, that Nathan's expressing. Cause I actually don't use this in practice. I think it's, um, I think it's complicated and it's it's hard to like learn. It's hard to put in daily practice. It's hard to make um, until it becomes like learning a second language. Th- this methodology, I think, is kind of difficult. And unless you have somebody that's like making all your meals and doing all those calculations for you, it's a lot of like mental bandwidth that that a lot of people just don't have the capacity to to do. And so then. And in my experience, when something's too complicated, they just kind of give up on it. And and then and then they and usually you just revert back to to whatever it is what, what you were doing. And there's not a lot of intentionality behind that. And so that's where you kind of want to find an approach that that people can use that's not overwhelming. And so I've done, I've tried these types of things. They just don't seem to stick when an athlete's responsible for feeding themselves. Uh, so that's that's one way to think about it. Unless like you're just like a sort of like really good with numbers and you really like this sort of stuff and you you do want to give that mental you do want to put that mental workload into it. But but a lot of times it's not like they don't get the payoff. They're just like, well, I exercise a lot. I'm going to eat what I feel like that sort of thing. So there's a couple of things. I, I'm just going to start mm-hmm. kind of far back with this and to give some context. So I actually don't use calories very much for me the more usable metric is grams per kilogram body weight because then of macronutrients because then it takes into consideration where the macronutrients are coming from and not just calories and the other thing about this is that when you're thinking about it in terms of calories whether it's calories per fat-free mass or calories based on your basal metabolic rate which I think you did a really good job explaining the difference between those two things because, you know, fat-free mass does require a little bit more calories is more metabolically active than fat mass. And so gauging things based on that does make sense. Like physiologically, the, the issue becomes, uh, it just becomes about calories and calories can come from anywhere and they're not always quality calories or they're not always, uh, the macronutrients are balanced. And when I say macronutrients, I mean, like, the components of food that we can access calories out of. So uh, protein, fat, carbohydrates. I know this is going to be very basic for a lot of people, but there is a lot of confusion in people about like that that caveat there, which was um, available calories. So for example, lettuce is all carbohydrate, but it's not available to us because we don't have the enzyme to break it down. So when we eat a bunch of lettuce at zero, 
But if a cow eats a bunch of lettuce, it has a lot of calories for them. This is why they can eat grass. And if we ate grass, it would not be, we couldn't get calories out of it, right? It's a weird example, but I've used it before. I hope, hopefully it's illustrative enough. So, so you want to think about like, okay, so we have, we need a certain amount of calories. We need a certain amount of each macronutrient. We need to eat nutritious foods that can provide those needs. The issues we run into when we try and do like a calorie heavy calculation and things like that is that when those changes are made, so he's talking about like, for example, 35 calories per kilogram fat-free mass and dropping down to 30. What you're basically doing is talking about a percentage change. And if you drop that across all calories, you can actually risk getting underfed in a gram per kilogram body weight with things like fat and protein. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So like the data is pretty clear on this. Like we need a certain amount of protein per kilogram body weight, whole body weight. And if you're at 2000 calories and say you break it down of, I, I do my basal metabolic rate is 2000 calories and I want to get uh 55% carbs, uh, you, you know, and, and however it works out 20% protein and, and 15% fat or however that works out. I guess it'd be 25% fat. If you do it like that, um, then if you say, okay, now I'm going to reduce my calories to 1300 calories a day, which 700 calorie deficit is not like crazy for a daily deficit. That's something that isn't going to have a lot of effects of like under eating and things like that. But it can, if the gram per kilogram body weight protein that you need now drops below what actually you need for your total body weight because the percentage of protein from the lower calorie amount is now less. Yeah. Does that make sense. any sense at all? Okay. Yeah. Like if so you just drop it across that, the bar, you could find yourself undernourished. If you drop it across the board, you can find yourself undernourished, particularly in protein and fat. So doing stuff with just calories gets risky because so many of the calories a person eats are carbs when they're on the bike or when they're trying to recover or when they're trying to carve up. And so if you start cutting calories across the board, but you want to maintain your intake on the bike, now you're starting to risk uh, a deficiency, in, not deficiency, but under optimization of, of protein and fat. So for that reason, uh, what I've kind of naturally settled on in terms of getting people to kind of get these things right is to do grants per kilogram recommendations. And I think that works a lot better because what happens is that you can do a you do grams per kilogram of total body weight for protein and for fat. And those are just set. You get those every day, regardless of training. And the reason why I like to do that in, in the way that I explain, and I, I haven't seen this like in the literature or anything. This is just what I use to explain to people. Is that like fat and protein are long-term nutrients. And what I mean by long-term nutrients is that if, if, you know, Jonathan or Nate, if you guys under eight in protein, let's say I tell you, I'd like you to average over a week, 1.5 grams per kilogram body weight for 24 hours, never going below 1.2. Okay. So, and th those are based on recommendations for athletes and they're, those are like textbook recommendations. Uh, but in, in our experience, they actually work quite well. And so 
if you guys were at like 0.8 or one consistently, let's say you have one day where you're at 1.0 grams per kilogram body weight, you're not going to feel different the next day or the next day or the next day. But if you were between 0.8 and one gram per kilogram body weight and protein for a month, all of a sudden you'd be like, man, these workouts are coming pretty quick. Like, I don't feel like I'm ready to, you're not bouncing back. Sleep might be a little off. You're hungry all the time, which is a sign that you're not eating enough protein because protein is the most like satiating and, and satisfying macronutrient. And you're just, something's a little off, right? And and then it, and if that continues on for six months or a year, now all of a sudden we've you've gotten yourself into a pretty big hole by just tipping away at it. It's like a, not to be too gruesome, but it's like a slow knife in the back. It's not, whereas like if you go for a ride and you, you try and do an all out threshold ride or you try and do a repeat ride in a fasted state, it's like, it's like very quick. Does that make sense? It's not a, totally. it's, it's a, I know that's very gruesome, but uh, like, I'm just trying to illustrate the point that it's, it's like this slowly developing thing. The problem with that is that like, if, if I sat down with Nate and I was like, Hey, man, I'm like, you know, give me your information or let's track this for a couple of weeks and find out what's going on. And now all of a sudden you're right around 0.8, uh, 0.85, which by the way, is the RDA recommendation for adults to get protein. They, and, but really that number is based off of preventing protein deficiency related diseases, not, not sports optimization or training optimization. So if all of a sudden I find out Nate's been, you know, get shorting himself for several months in protein and it lines up with signs of overreaching and overtraining and stuff like that. I can't just say like, all right, order a quarter of a cow and let's sit down and finish this thing. And now your protein metabolism is back. It doesn't work like that. Like Protein's one of those things that like, you're not going to feel a difference if you all of a sudden get 1.5 grams per kilogram the next day, you're not going to feel different the next day. It's going to take several months to come out of that. And, you know, roughly it's going to be about the same amount of time it took you to get in that hole to get out of that hole. There's no literature to suggest that because it would just be a really hard study to do. It's just, these are just a combination of my experience plus the science. So we, we just put that number, we put the protein number and the fat number and it's every day and it's non-negotiable. And when you do that, even at twice the amount of what's recommended for protein, 1.6 grams per kilogram body weight, and then fat as low as you can go and still maintain your essential fat. And this is particularly important for females that, that are trying to maintain a monthly menstrual cycle and, and their estrogen levels and all those different types of things. That, that fat, fat does a lot more than just like slow us down or provide slow energy. Um, so the lowest that the, the evidence suggests you can go is one gram per kilogram body weight. And I actually usually go to like 1.2 just to give it a little wiggle room. Unless it's like six or eight weeks before, like we got to be on on this day, this time. Um, but we're not planning on maintaining that body weight for the throughout the whole year. It's just um, it's unattainable. Like, but we need to be there on that day for this event. That makes sense. So, so the the generality of the approach is like you set those proteins and you set those uh, that fat and. When you do the math, that will never add up to what your resting metabolic rate is if you just use those two metrics in grams per kilogram body weight, right? 
And, and so from there, everything else gets rounded out by carbs. But what's nice about carbs is they are, in contrast to fat and protein, they are a short-term nutrients where like somebody could not eat carbs for six months and, and they wouldn't be performing well to go to the cow analogy. If you just sat down and ate like a huge bowl of rice and ate 600, somehow forced 600 grams of rice down your uh, carbohydrates, down your face, you're kind of back right away. Like it's there for you right away. And this is, this is kind of what's fun about carbohydrates. When you meet an athlete that's like eating pretty well, but they're under fueled in carbohydrates, you know, it, as soon as you tell them like, Hey, for the next three meals, eat hundred grams of carbohydrates and then get two gels per hour on the bike. And you know, that next workout, they're going to feel awesome. And that that's the fun part about carbohydrates is it comes back like that. Whereas like, if you get somebody that, you know, like, uh, you, you have a female athlete that maybe is uh, oligomenorrheic, so they have an irregular, uh, menstrual cycle They're they have low body fat. They're not sleeping well, those types of things. It might take six months, eight months, maybe even a year before that person is really feeling like quote unquote themselves again, because it takes such a long time to come out of those things. So that's the first thing I thought of when I saw this is like, one, there is some weight fluctuation, which can be normal and guys can get away with it uh, more than girls. It just is what it is. The second thing that came to mind right away is how old is Nathan? Because the younger you are, the easier it is to gain and lose weight. And that becomes more and more challenging over time. The other thing is that becomes more challenging over time that we see is that the same things that people did to lose weight, uh, especially if those were drastic, those things don't work in the future after you do them too many times. If we have any like uh, wrestlers or MMA fighter, or combat sports athletes, or those like those types of athletes listening, and even cyclists and runners, a lot of times what you'll say is like, well, I used to just like cut out dessert and then I'd get down to race weight. And it was just like general recommendations like that that would lead to, and then it was like all of a sudden I hit 30 and it's like cutting out dessert didn't seem to be enough and those sorts of things. And there's there's a lot of interesting reasons for that. And the other thing too is that the the more times you do this, especially if it's really extreme. So you're like, I'm just not gonna eat for a week and then I'll lose a bunch of weight. You will do that the first time. The second time, as soon as you get to day two of being severely calorie restricted, the nervous system learns, right? The body keeps the score. And so the central regulator, the CPU, the brain is gonna go like, oh, I've seen this before and that was not good for us. And I'm just, I'm shutting that down right now. And then that's when you get slowing down in metabolism, you get changes in your resting metabolic rate, you start holding on to calories more, you get more protective, and it just becomes harder to lose weight. Typically, what people do is they like double down and they do more extreme things to, to get down like that. So that, you know, while Nathan is, maybe you can get away with it at this point, that level of like undulating throughout, is just going to be harder and harder to get to where you want in the what you think is a normal time frame based on historical data that you have for, oh yeah, it only took me five weeks to go from 171 to 157. That's not going to happen next time, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, so, so it's a really straightforward the way he's presenting it, but it's super complex from a physiologic standpoint. So what I would say, if I was just, you know, had to like boil this all down, I would say that you can set a goal weight that is higher or lower than where you're at 
currently, but not by more than five pounds. Absolute most 10 pounds if you're like a young male, basically. In our practice, like just in, in my experience, saying like, well, I weigh 180, but I need to race at 165. So I'm going to eat based on calculations for a 165 person. You're really risking sub-optimization, particularly of protein and fat. So what I would say is like, if, if, I, if I had an athlete that was 180 and needed to get down to 165, depending on the time frame, hopefully we'd have enough time. And I would say, well, let's do like 173 or 174, convert that into kg and then get 1.5 grams per kilogram body weight, 173 for protein, uh, 1.2 grams per kilogram fat at uh, whatever the kg conversion would be for 173 pounds. And then as you lose weight, we then reassess, we lower that again, and and we do it in like a stepwise fashion like that. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, absolutely. Do, do you have any sort of like um, time frame that you kind of operate on when you're looking at like if an athlete wants to lose five pounds or 10 pounds, what you feel like is sustainable? And I, I imagine there's probably inner individual. Such a cool question. Effects. Yeah. That's the key. So, so some people, it happens very quickly. Some people, it doesn't. And then for other people, it happens all at once, but not linearly. Uh, whereas other people, it happens linearly. And I think it's really important for people to hear. What, what I have found is that it's really important to like have the plan and stick to the plan and trust your body to do what's right for your body. And I know that sounds very ephemeral and like uh, not not like data-driven and all this type of things, but I've seen it blow up way too many times where people set their own weight loss goals based on what they want and not what their body is willing to give them. And so if that disconnect causes a lot of friction, especially for type A endurance athletes that want the results if they quote unquote put in the work. And so one of the things that I try and uh, reassure people through is by saying like, look, if you're eating healthy, if you're sleeping well, if training quality is going good, those are the most important KPIs. And then if we are getting enough protein and getting enough fat, and it's within a reasonable degree of where you are currently, we're going to then from there manipulate carbohydrates at varying levels of aggressiveness, depending on what time of year it is and, and how much we, can, we think we can get away with. And then we're just going to let your body do its thing. Because like, if you look at like an Olympic podium, now there's clearly a difference. Like anybody could look at an Olympic podium of the um, power lifters, an Olympic podium of 1500 meter runners and see, or, or the time trialists and see that there's clear morphologic differences between those two groups of athletes. That's not what I'm saying. But within an event, if you look at a podium or you look at the top 10, there, there's a lot of different ways you can get to that level of performance. And I think it's really, I think dangerous is too strong of a word, but I think it's too short-sighted and it causes a lot of people, a lot of unnecessary stress and even like uh, guilt and shame and those types of things. If you start putting numbers on what this person's body is supposed to be doing based on what you think is going to get that out of them. That makes sense. It's, it's like yeah. an insult to their talent, quite okay. frankly. And so what we do is we just say, Hey, look, 
do not compare yourself to other people. We're going to do these things that are evidence-based that are going to put your body in the best position to respond in the way it's willing to respond over this time frame. And then we are going to then look at the, uh, the real KPIs, which is performances. And are you feeling good? And, and I've had actually people say like, I don't like the way I look. And it's like, well, have you ever, um, have you ever trained this well, this consistently? No. How's it, your performance on the bike? Great. How are, your, how are you doing in races? Great. Are you recovering for workouts? Great. Well, then this is where your body wants to be to perform at its best. It, we all can't be super ripped. Like it's this, mm -hmm. that's all genetic um, or largely genetic. I think too, Kyle, especially people yeah. our age, which were, I'm 42 now, we watched cycling in the nineties and the people were pumped full of steroids and EPO, giant legs with veins yes. and extremely low body fat that is not attainable naturally. And we think that we can get there or that is the ideal body shape because we saw, you know, Lance going flying up hills looking like that. Uh, and yeah, it's just not the case anymore. And you, now you see pro cyclists, there are some like that, but there's a lot of people that are a little bit softer, like Wout Van Art, he would not, you, you would have shown him next to like the guys in the 90s and you'd be like, he's not a cyclist. And he's one of the best, greatest cyclists of all time, right? That's a good example. And big, too. Yeah, it's great. I think the analogy the analogy is the same for, like, in Major League Baseball during the steroid era versus not. Like, it's totally different. When you look at before the steroid era and then now, there was, like, this morphology that became the ideal that is totally unattainable without these types of, like, super physiologic inputs. And yeah. The the thing that really breaks my heart, especially from the, and I don't think that's too strong, like, is with the female athletes. There are these like ideals that where people can be performing at a very, very high level and be unhappy in their body. It's, it's insulting to your talent, quite frankly. Like, and so if we can change the narrative, not in the sense of just like, I wouldn't tell Nathan, well, you're 171 now, except that you're special who you are and we don't have to do anything to, to change that. Like if he's producing the same amount of power at 171 as he's producing at 157, he's going to be slower at 171. It's just a fact, right? So, so we can't be afraid to have that conversation, but what we should be wary of is, and this is what I see more often is somebody saying, well, I produce four Watts per kg at 157. If I was 145 and produce, you know, then I could be at four and a half or five, whatever that conversion would be. I could be higher watts per kg. And, but, but there's a massive assumption that you're going to be able to produce that level of power at that and that you're going to be able to sustain it for a long time and that you're not putting yourself at long term health risks um, that are. Uh, potentially uh, negative long-term health characteristics for like a very short uh, performance gain, a short window of time where there's a performance. I, when I first started cycling, uh, yeah. I, I didn't have much body mass on me. I just like served a church mission for two years. I just walked and had parasites for two years all day. So like, <laughs> so like I was, there was not a whole lot left of me. And when I started cycling, I remember, um, I, I really got into it. I didn't have a power meter at first or anything like that. And I remember racing at like 138 pounds, somewhere around there. And I was, I was, you know, I was a climber. I was fast going up hills. 
But now looking back at that sort of data uh, and just kind of reverse engineering things in terms of knowing my weight and then knowing what the, what equipment I was on and everything else, I think that I was at about 4.2 Watts per kilogram. So it wasn't like I was, you know, I was no Tade Pogacar or anything like that. You know, (laughs) I wasn't off the charts. Since then, I've been able to get above five watts per kilogram, but it's been heavier. I've been doing that at at up it to like, you know, at 145 to 150 pounds. That's when I can get to five watts per kilogram. But it I for so long fought that. And I thought that every year when peak racing needed to come around, I needed to lose another five pounds to get down to 140. And that's like what I really held to it's for a long time. time. Yeah. And and basically what that resulted in was, and uh, apologies to my wife, is me probably being like completely flying off the handle of things and being super emotional when I shouldn't have been, you know, like I'd try to put my sock on and I miss one time and then like the whole day is ruined. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like <laughs> or something silly like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It's so interesting <laughs> you know? how, if you were actually in a situation where you starving yourself was literally like saving your family, you probably wouldn't get that frustrated. But because you're like surrounded in this, like in the literature, they call it an obesogenic environment is what we live in. And so like when you're surrounded by food all the time and you're, you're like willing yourself not to eat it, your brain just, the central nervous system does not like that. And so these are the things that, and you have to take those things into consideration. You don't want to do short-term things for that put your long-term health at risk. That That is like, if I had like a number one guiding principle, it's like when I talk to young athletes, particularly, it's like, look, this approach, yeah, I want you to be as fast as you possibly can, but we are not going to do anything to put your long-term health at risk for that type of flickering moment. Um, and quite frankly, you you often, you might have one of those moments but if you're super talented and you want 10 of those moments over 15 years, it's not going to happen if you if you do these things like this that, that yeah, exactly. So yeah. what would those things be that put your long-term health at risk with a dramatic weight loss or weight change or what would they be? Yeah, so it's interesting. It's a, it's a good question. So, so some of the most obvious ones, like going back to your 90s analogy, would just be doing doing a bunch of drugs, like doing a lot of illegal drugs and those types of things, right? That like there's a biological price at some point for those types of things. The less obvious thing would be like, if you're 19 or you're 20, you may still be growing. And if you get so lean and cut out all fat, for example, maybe you get as lean as you've ever been and you have one season where you're climbing, but now all of a sudden you're like low in testosterone, you you have chronically high cortisol that eventually goes down. So now you don't have any cortisol to to get your exercise response up. And like there's different things that can happen to your metabolism. And I'm I'm speaking very generally in terms of like cancer risk or type two diabetes risk or those types of things. I don't, I can't like there's there's no like concrete connection between those two things and what I'm talking about. But w- what I am suggesting is that if you want to be as healthy as you can through the lifespan, um, starving yourself for a significant period of that is is maybe not the best approach. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And and we see it in we see it with uh hormone levels and we see it um in the menstrual cycle and we see all these different types of things like that. How I understand it is that 
like, you know, hormones play such an important role in recovery, performance, body composition for the same weight, because that's a, a big thing. You're going to be losing um, fat or muscle. Men can have a lot lower body fat than women, and we can maybe play with that more, although there is a limit, where with women, um, what they kind of see sometimes in social media and stuff is lower than they should be and is going to hurt performance. And you can kind of chase a look um, where... And there's, I think what I've seen and what we've heard too is that there's maybe, this is anecdotal, but like your opinion on this, more range of optimal performance for women, maybe at higher body fat that we've seen in sports than, and then some women are less where maybe in the pro Peloton, they're two or three points different, you know, four points different where with uh, pro women, there may be a bigger range for world-class performance. Is that true? Am I thinking about this right? Uh, and then with women too, the the hormones are so important for menstrual cycle, which is also important for um for uh, performance. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So the first thing I want to acknowledge is I think we're three dudes sitting around and talking about female uh, nutrition and hormones and those types of things. So I think that's an important acknowledgement to make that we can look at the science of it and we can talk about it like that, but we're not living that experience in, in the same way that, that like a female perspective would have and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. Um, the next thing, though, is I do work with probably 50% female, 50% male athletes is like, uh, and, and it's a, it is something one, you have to be able to openly talk about and, and sort of like those sorts of things. But then the menstrual cycle can be actually used as a really important gauge for how well you're doing nutritionally. It's sometimes like guys sort of miss out on that. They don't get that that data point of am am I regular? Is it normal? Um, and then what's changed in diet and training that may have affected that if there's changes in that menstrual cycle. In the conversations I have with female athletes, um, it's it's more about is there a change in this because that could give us insight into what we're doing from a training and eating standpoint. Now, going back to your other question, I think it's similar for guys as it is girls. So just a perception that now, yes, we we can run guys. I'm saying we. Uh, so males can run with a lower body fat percentage. We can have a lower body fat percentage and you can be a little bit more aggressive, especially when you're trying to reduce calories and you're bringing that fat down to about 1.0 grams per kilogram body weight. I still don't like to mess with that too much because when you get too little in fat, um, particularly, you know, fat is the basis for cholesterol and cholesterol is the basis for steroid hormones. So estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, cortisol, there's like 14 or 15 um, steroid-based hormones that are made from cholesterol. And if we're running too low in fat, we don't have the means to get that. The other thing that I've noticed, and this is largely genetic, a lot of this is genetic, is that some women can run like very, very low body fat, but they require more fat intake on a daily basis. So as long as you meet that turnover need, there's not a disruption in their menstrual cycle. There's not a disruption in their training. There's not a disruption in their hormone profile, but they really can't afford to go lower than what they need to get on a daily basis, even if they're quite lean. It's very individual when it comes to this. And, you know, I've had runners where it's like, you miss it, you miss your period by a couple of days. And then we, 
we adjust by adding an avocado and a handful of Brazilian nuts for the day. And in a month, it's back. I'm painting with pretty broad brushstrokes here, but a number of female athletes that are, and I'm largely speaking through my experience, but I know I keep using that as a, a to, to kind of set the stage, but I just want to make sure that's really clear. I'm not speaking like this is, this is a fact for everybody. And two, um, um, sorry, I'll interrupt you, but go ahead. my understanding is the research on women is so much less than men. I know Stacey Sims talks a lot about this too, but like, um, even though your experience is anecdote, I think everyone would love to hear some of your experiences, it's not really anecdotes, like you're, you're a researcher and a professional at this. Um, and then more research is coming now that, that is just shifting, but um, thanks for putting those caveats on too. And we, we feel the same way and it's better to talk about, it, I think than not. Yeah, I so just air, I, I like yeah. to air on that conservative side. Yeah. I like to air yeah. on that conservative side because I'm a lifetime learner. And so like, if you had asked me this five years ago, my answer would be different. And if I said it with absolute certainty, it, it prevents my ability to flip <laughs> and, and take in new information, you know? So I, I'm always super careful about that, especially when I'm speaking in these types of environments. So, and you're right, you know, it's interesting. I was just talking to one of my students about the lack of um, uh, research in these areas, particularly around the female menstrual cycle and those types of things. And there's actually some really good studies back in the 90s about things like VO2 max and lactate threshold. And they used the same subjects at every phase of the cycle and they controlled for diet and they did all these types of things. So it's like, you're really interested in that. I would go back and, and find those papers. Tracy Horton wrote a lot of those papers. Um, and I think that data still holds up. But the main reason I can get for that is that reviewers want you to control for the time of the cycle when the study took place. And it just became this thing where like you couldn't get a paper through unless you did all your tests and uh, data collection during the same phase of the cycle, as opposed to saying, well, let's get as many women as we can and just note what phase of the cycle they're in. I'd rather take that approach. Like let's test everybody when they're available because it's really hard to get human subjects. Because honestly, when you're doing human subjects stuff, and this is another like tangent, but you have to take into consideration the amount of variables that are just uncontrollable. The person could be having a bad day. They could have not gotten a great night of sleep. You know, you put all this stuff in there, like we told them to go to bed at the same time of day and not change their exercise routine. But if they have a fight with their partner or significant other or something like that, or something happened and they show up, that can impact the results of your study. And so you have to take those things into consideration. And for, for a lot of people, it's frustrating. For me, I think it's really fun and interesting to think about those aspects when you're doing this. But it does change how you may approach things. And so for the for people that are doing research, you know, that are based in in uh and you're really interested in doing it in female athletes, I would say get as much information as you can as opposed to trying to control every single little thing. Having said that, when you're working with elites particularly, uh, you really, really have to do it on an individual basis. It's very clear when someone has talent, you have to take care of that. Like such a, it's such a precious thing when when somebody is talented, and you you have to be really careful about wanting it all within the first two years of their career, um, mm -hmm. because it just like you're you're doing that talent disservice, and especially when you put them into these these big ups and downs and these wild fluctuations. And now we're going to add this and now we're going to do that. And we're just going to assume that talent is always going to be there. 
And we're just going to, and you take it for granted and you can't do that. And so what I would say is just like, it's, it's very like easy and empowering, but you sort of embrace who you are, make sure you're getting enough protein, make sure you're getting enough fat. You can try and get experiment. You can try and say like, if I could maintain my power and I could lose some weight, that'd be really cool. And you can try it, but you have to try it in a way that isn't going to backfire and put you into overtraining and overreaching and those types of things. You have to put your body in a position where it wants to get down to that. And that might take three years. Like you don't get to decide. You can't decide like, well, I'm, I'm 145 right now. And my first race is in eight weeks. I need to be 140. I'm just going to do all this crazy stuff. It will completely disrupt your life and probably backfire from a performance standpoint. What you would say is like, I'm going to lower my grams per kilogram body weight from, from 145 to 140. I'm going to still take my recovery drink. I'm going to still eat on my bike. I'm going to still modulate carbs depending on what workouts I have coming out and what workouts I'm coming out of. And then I'm just going to let my body and my talent do its thing. And that's been the thing that has worked the best for us. Mm. Does that, that make sense? Yeah. Makes you know, sense. I know. Nate, yeah. you got that? Yeah. Um, two with the, so most people listening here aren't a Kate Courtney or Keegan Swenson, right? Like you're like, you know, you're doing talent disservice, but we all have our individual talent, right? And where yeah. our like potential is. hundred percent. And what we've said, is, I know, but like, I'm thinking to myself, cause you know, it's been, it's been a journey and, uh, <laughs> I've done the thing where I've kind of like tried to, to chase a number on the scale and I might lose some weight and keep the power the same, but the, the, you know, I, I was reading this question from Nathan and. I was at 23% body fat before and I got down to eight, but the way that I did it was I focused on consistency and volume and doing the, the protein targets, the carbs and sleep and sleep is a huge one for body composition. And yes. then I was able yeah. to do more workouts and it just like slowly came off over weeks and weeks where you might not even notice it. And there's also, there's a Dexa time where I lost seven pounds of fat and gained four pounds of muscle. This is when I was about my worst, like, you know, yeah. I was like 205 pounds, 23% exactly. body fat. And if I just would have been chasing the number, I would have been so discouraged. Right. But, uh, I'm the Dexa. Thank goodness for that. That helped me. But I think there's something to say for us normal people, exactly. uh, just focus on that kind of volume that you can recover from and then be consistent and don't too, do too much. You know, we, we have that Kyle, you might know about this, but we have this preacher called "Red Light Green Light," which is supposed to predict fatigue um, based on your past history, so that you you limit your training before you get into the hole. You could do the, you could do the workout that day, yeah. but we don't want to. And what we've seen, and I've seen on the forum, is um, and I've done this myself too. You say like rush it, you want it all in two years. I really want it in two weeks, and I switch from three <laughs> days a week to six days yeah. per week to like two hours per day. First two weeks feel amazing, and this feature is going. You should yeah. slow down, and I'm like I. I've trained perfectly this this first two weeks, and I think that Probably. patience amount because you'll have some changes. Performance. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So there, there's multiple things here that I, that I want to unpack. I'm really glad you brought up the example and using you as an like. Yeah, I think it's it's relatable. And so one of the most undervalued things in endurance sports is consistency. Uh, so I talked to um, if, if I do like a community presentation to high school or, or college athletes or those sorts of things. They, they see things in terms of seasons. And so that, and when the season is over, then it's off. 
And if you go from like being totally locked in for a couple months and then totally like not doing anything for a couple weeks, you will not gain it with consistency. The other thing, your point, Nate, is that if you go from three days a week to six days a week and, and you will see some change early on, but if whatever that change is, isn't sustainable, then it's not really a change. And that's the thing that happens a lot with, you know, everybody is, is now savvy enough to know that like diets are temporary. That's why they call it a diet, you know, those sorts of things. But the reality of that is like, if you're thinking about making a change in your food intake and your nutritional approach, if, if, you, if you do that in a way that can't be sustained, like think about this for the rest of your life. Can I do this for the rest of my life? Like those base questions are literally like, then you may want to really question whether or not you're going to make this change or not. This is why like time-restricted feeding, I think, is really difficult. And, and the literature shows this. It's really hard for people to adhere to. Yeah, they can do it for like six months when they're doing a study. But if you ask somebody, did you maintain this for seven years? Yeah. They they can't. And Keto it's too. because like, yeah, it has no wiggle room for holidays, birthdays, social events, life events, the way you may feel on a certain day. I mean, what happens if like, if I only eat between 12 and six every day, but then uh, my buddy and I want to go climb and ski Mount Hood and we have to start at three in the morning. Like, what do you do in those circumstances? It's not adaptable. And then I'm a failure because I ate that. I ate uh, pancakes in the parking lot of Timberline Lodge at 4 a.m. And it wasn't 12. You see what I'm saying? And when you get these people that are very regimented, which a lot of endurance athletes are, like then you you have these, yeah, you're you're now a failure because you didn't stick to this. And so you want to be really careful and flex, not flexible in a way that's like soft and just like I accept anything. I'm just going to eat whatever I want whenever I want. But if you have a sustainable plan, what you end up doing is eating what you're supposed to eat, not supposed to eat, but you you eat what you generally is in line with your overall goals and you're able to maintain that consistently. And so there isn't like this, you know, for Nathan, there isn't like this magical change where it's going to be, I'm going to switch from 35 and then I'm going to go to 30 and then I'm going to go back to 40 and it's all going to be, what I would say is like, where do you feel the best? on the bike right now. And if it's like, I don't know, I don't think I've ever peaked as like a cyclist or a runner or, or a triathlete. Like, I don't think I've ever peaked. It's like, all right, well, let's just take stock of where you are right now. We'll go five pounds down from that. We'll make sure you're getting enough protein. We'll make sure you're getting enough fat. We'll make sure you're eating hundred grams of carbohydrates and four meals leading up to big workouts that you're modulating carbohydrates coming out of workouts. And we're going to let your body do its thing. And if you're willing to commit to that, which is very sustainable, um, then we're going to let your body do its thing. And we're not going to set the, what I think are kind of random goals about like, I want to X amount of body fat or X amount of fat free mass, which is going to let your body do its thing. And, and I think, you know, Nathan, you know, Nate, you gave a really good example because in a lot of ways you had you you had a lottery ticket you didn't know you had because you went on this journey of I'm 23% body fat, I want to be less than 10% body fat. 
And you were actually genetically capable of achieving that with certain, uh, with certain approaches. And you actually took those certain approaches. And so that to me is like, you got lucky on a lot of different levels. I, no, I mean, I know you were really, um, no, no, you were intentional about it, yeah. but, but like, if your body was just like, if your genetics said, I'm not going below 11th and I'm actually going to make you feel miserable, so miserable that you quit biking to keep you above 11%. And then all of a sudden, now you don't bike and you're a failure because you couldn't get down to 8% body fat. And it goes back to that, that your comment about gotcha and, and these different types of people. When you see athletes that that are taking super physiologic, aren't, aren't using super physiologic means of, then what you see is over years, you see progression that actually makes sense based on consistency. Mm. Yeah, I, I think too that, you know, there's, I'm, I am, oh, this is going to cause comments on YouTube. Please talk about this. You know, <laughs> calor, calories and calories out as, as far as a system and weight, weight loss, not fat is a thing. But what, what you just said about having um, predisposed genetic like levels of body fat and where you're at and having your body say, no, this is horrible and you're going to feel horrible and you're going to have the biggest cravings and it's going to be extremely hard to get down. Um, that stuff's totally right. And they can, they both live together. They're both true. And I think that 100%. we talk about with people about doing um, focus up process goals rather than outcome goals, because you can't choose the outcome if you're going to win the race or if you're going to hit a certain body fat. Right. But you can choose that. I'm going to get um, 1.5 to two grams per protein. Um, per kilogram body weight. Um, let me actually, I want to go through some of the things that I've heard that are important yeah, yeah, yeah. for um, performance and for okay. weight loss. Yeah. Um, one is protein intake. And I think you said when you're training, do you like 1.5 yeah. grams per kilogram? Yeah, this is my thought process through this. We'll um, we'll just get right under the hood with it. So so basically what, what the research says in really hard training athletes, but I also think this is beneficial in rec recreationally active athletes, even like walkers, all the way up to the age groupers, all the way up to through the categories that this applies. Protein, protein can apply here. So what the recommendation is, is that strength athletes can go to two to 2.5 grams per kilogram body weight. There have actually been a few studies looking at endurance athletes with higher amounts of protein intake daily, all the way up to three grams per kilogram body weight. There was actually a study, it was either in swimmers or rowers. Um, and I've tried this with a few people. It's just absolutely unsustainable. You can't eat that much. It's miserable trying to eat that much. And what most of the evidence suggests is that it's very, very marginal gains, if any gains at all, over two. And that holds true for like really what they say is um, 1.2 to 2 for a hard training endurance athlete. I don't love being at either extreme when I make sort of recommendations. So what I would typically say is like, I'm going to give you a low daily protein and a high daily protein. Your low will be 1.4, your high will be 1.8. And if you're somewhere in that range every day, we're doing fine with protein. So I just want to, I want to say this based on the, the comment that you made earlier, Nate, about the calories in, the calories out. If that were true, we could predict weight loss every single time in every single person in, in every single situation, because 
everyone's heard this saying that 3,500 calories is a pound. And if you reduce your caloric intake by 500 calories a day, then you lose one pound a week. Well, every single person listening to this podcast fluctuates three to five pounds per day just based on their fed state, their fasted state, their water glycogen, all these different types of things, right? So, So if you do weigh yourself, I would use weight as a indicator, not as a metric. That's super important. You can't say, I want to be X weight. You can't. I would not advise saying, you want to be X weight. I would say, I'm going to eat for this goal weight that is within five pounds of where I want to be or where I am at the moment. And then I'm going to get between 1.2 and 1.8 grams per kilogram body weight per day. And if it's the shoulder season or if it's base training phase for fat, it's going to be 1.2 to like 1.3 or 1.4. And if it's like, I have six weeks until world championships and I got it, or I have six weeks until the the Baker classic and I'm gonna, and I really want to throw down or the Breck epic. That's a, that's a great one for like, that's a lot. That's a goal for a lot of like high level cat one and, and age groupers right so so i get a lot of calls around you know times <laughs> about six six to eight weeks out from breck epic i get I start getting some calls and so under those circumstances yeah you can go to one to 1.1 grams per kilogram fat but man you better be careful because you are absolutely riding a line and you better be getting enough overall calories you better be eating enough on the bike and you better be taking your recovery drink and you better be modulating carbohydrates effectively, depending on what workouts you have coming up or what workout you're leaving from. That's sort of the process. And, and if you do that, I'll have athletes that are 145, 145, 145, and then all of a sudden one morning they step on the snail and they're 141, and it's a week before the race. And the less they've been worrying about it, this is purely anecdotal, but the more people worry about losing weight, the less, the harder it is for them to lose weight. Like I'm convinced that I don't know how to study this, but I'm convinced that there is a, there's a central governor that feel that senses that threat of like, I have to do this. I have to do this. I have to do this. And, and the body says, what, what is this threat that we're facing? I'm locking things down. And uh, yeah. So, so the less people worry about it. And that's why you set these metrics. Like, Eating 1.2 grams per kilogram body weight for my goal weight that's within five pounds of my current weight is something I can do every day. And that's a goal. The weight is an indicator. It's not a goal. It's not a metric. Kyle, there's, I, I, and I want to be cognizant of your time. I don't want to take up too much, but there's two main topics yeah, that yeah. I want to get no, into good. here. Like the first one, I want to talk about fat in particular. Wait, John, um, can I ask a couple more questions about weight loss things? I'll, I'll swear I'll go fast. On, yeah, the, on the yeah. rest of that question. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, that okay, but I feel like I got yeah. off track and I didn't, I feel like I got off track and didn't end up answering your, no, no. I don't know so if this is a protein. You got it's amazing. Protein 1.2 to 1.8 around there. Uh, side note too, on those studies where they do like for weight training, you know, two to 2.2 and they go higher 2.5, you know, they report like there's like a band of where most people do, but there are some outliers like. That some people in the study did eat three and had this huge increase. And I'm like, who are those people and what are those genetics? And I want to know, that's a side note, but that's crazy. And that's kind of the individuality of if you are eating, if you do feel better outside of these ranges, like maybe 
uh, do that because the studies are, look at the actual results sometimes rather than the actual number they put. And it's really interesting. Um, the other one that I heard. And just look at whether or not they actually look at whether or not they actually, uh, display the individual response. Like a lot of times, like they won't have a significant P value, but you look at the, you look at the individual responsiveness and if they have multiple panels, you want to know if the same, the same dot on each panel was the same person. Because you can start to look at, oh, did they have a response in this area and not this area or those types of things? So mm -hmm. that's just when you're looking at these papers, it's something that really yeah. good point. Um, too many sidetracks. So <laughs> during um, during a calorie deficit too, uh, protein is very important to maintain so that you do maintain to your, uh, you hold on to your muscle mass. Because if you lose, if you don't eat enough protein, it's more likely than to lose muscle mass. Is that, is that true too? Yeah, I'm glad we brought this up. There's a, there's a couple of things that I think are just like, I just want to hit on really quickly. One is that when you train, you induce a negative protein balance. When you eat after training and over the next like 24 to 48, even up to 72 hours, the food that you're eating is going into the positive protein balance response that has to be greater than the protein detriment that you incurred if you want an adaptation. So like if you're looking at a straight line here and the deficit goes to two, then the, the positive part has to go to three if you want a gain, if, if you sense. want an adaptation from that workout. Okay. So the think of somebody that has to be like, positive, right? Yeah. For those it has to be positive under those circumstances and the work, the work, induces the negative side of it. So what you're trying to do in the post-exercise state is maximize that positive side of it so that you can get the most net adaptation in your response from a physiologic standpoint. Let's just use an example of like, I'm going to uh, under-eat in protein or not eat at all, and I'm going to run every day. You, or I'm going to lift every day, let's say. You will, you will get weaker even though you're lifting a lot because you're never you're you're never making up for the deficit that you incur when you are lifting with a positive adaptation you have to have nutrition to get the adaptation uh you can you can start really like thinking about the evolutionary basis for that and like why would we exert effort that broke us down but didn't result in uh, achieving the nutrients that we could be using our energy to hunt down and all these different types of things, right? So so that's the first point is that you're you're incurring a negative sort of protein balance and you want to get a positive protein balance that goes above what you incur. This is why overtraining is not good. Like you don't have to kill yourself every day because it's too much of a breakdown and it's impossible to get that adaptation. I have this conversation a lot about threshold. You guys all appreciate this. I have this conversation a lot about threshold training where um, people are like, well, it was the last one. And I really wanted to go for it. And it's like, if I, if my goal is to bench press 150 pounds, I don't start with 180. Like the, the whole thing with threshold work is you go, we, our body super compensates when we recover from a stimulus. So you put it right at that edge and then you get the super compensation, you get the benefit. But if you go over that edge, you've now created a new stimulus that you're adapting. So, so the point is, is that you have to get up to that positive thing. Now, here's what's really cool about this is that 
there's these two guys that publish a lot of papers on protein balance and stuff like that. Their names are Tipton and Ferrando. They're like, I'm like a fanboy of Tipton and Ferrando. You can go look at their papers. But they wrote this really cool paper a couple of years ago that I use in my classes um, where they basically said there's three ways that that athletes or, or people that are training, a lot of this has to do with strength training, but there's three ways that you that you can add protein. You can, as training goes on, say over a 24-week period, you can get better at not having as much uh, detriment in protein breakdown and your protein synthesis in the post-exercise state could stay the same. And your adaptations will go up because now your intake and the work is causing less damage, but you're recovering at the same rate. The second possibility is you still incur the same amount of damage because, uh, but you get better at synthesizing protein in the post-exercise state and you create a larger difference there. And that's how you accrue changes. Or uh, option C, which is what they think, and it's also what I think um, is actually what's happening, is you incur the same amount of damage and the same amount of synthesis. And when you, quote unquote, get into shape, it's the accumulation of individual workouts, the changes that occur in individual workouts. And each one of those workouts contributes to the found, to the building in to the same degree. You don't, because when you increase your ability to stress the system, then you have just the same amount of, you, you have a greater stimulus, but you're, you have a greater capacity. And so it all works out like this. And this is where the consistency piece comes into it to, to tie it all together. Because if you are training intentionally every day, it's way better to have Bs and B pluses. We talk about this all the time. This time of year, we want Bs and B pluses and no misdays. Oh, I, I don't that. want one A workout a week and you know, one or two A workouts a week, and then the rest of your week is shit. I want all Bs and B pluses. You just, I'm getting enough protein. I'm getting enough fat. I've carved up enough. I'm taking care of my body. I'm getting sleep. Uh, hormones are feeling good. Sleep is good. There's no signs of overtraining, and the numbers are going up. That means you're accumulating training adaptations, utilizing the body's natural ability to do super compensation, which is our evolutionary hack. We do something. When we respond to it, we the response overdoes it, and then we get better. And different people have different genetic ceilings for that ability. Uh, it's just the way it is. And so uh, you what you do is you put yourself in a position to realize your genetic potential and and not these like sort of, and it may be that, and we've all heard these stories like, I didn't touch a bike until I was in high school. I got on the world tour team. Well, you're just genetically different than somebody that started riding bikes when they were two years old and are not on a world team. But that doesn't mean that person that is loves bikes, loves riding, loves training, loves being intentional, can't fulfill whatever it is they're genetically capable of fulfilling. For sure. Um, yeah. So, so I just... That 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 thing unlocked so much for me in terms of going the importance of consistency and not thinking that doing more was the way to progress. You don't get more out of it. You're just changing the stimulus and you're creating more negative protein balance and it just becomes harder to recover from and get those adaptations. 
And when you're very consistent and intentional and you stress the system in the right way, you get the benefit of that. And we do that as humans. You're like uh, selling our new system, red light, green light, because what happens is people can have what we call a red day, a yellow day, meaning, hey, you need to take it easy. A red day is like you've done something big that's not conducive with your training history and you need to rest. And you can still do a workout on that red day. You can do a big, a big red day. Um, side note, by the way, Keegan doesn't have red days, barely like there's a couple early yeah. season. He has some yellows and he goes easy on the yellows. It's really interesting. Um, yeah. uh, they yeah. talk about consistency. Um, this is his talent though. Like mm-hmm. this is his talent though, right? Like he yeah. is everything when in, uh, he's talked about this publicly, so it's not like secret or anything, but he just said, when I started riding bikes more, the more I ride bikes, the better I get. And it doesn't seem to be a ceiling to it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, sure. well, that's that's yeah. not normal. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but he, um, uh, what you said about is you have the, the deficit, right? And then if you go too low into it, you can't recover. And I think that's when you, you get slower, you get angry. Um, and then you start to take more time off or you get burnt out or something like that. And then, sorry, John, I have one more question. So we got the protein. Um, the other one is, uh, sleep for in a calorie deficit. I saw a study where it had some people sleep like four hours per night and others like nine and the four, they both bought the calories controlled. They both lost the same amount of weight, but the people that slept like four hours lost almost all muscle and the people who slept like nine yeah Yeah. isn't that crazy yeah can you can you talk about that a little bit yeah yeah i actually use this study in in my sports nutrition class when we get to the part about weight optimization and so college students is a really good study study. to go and look at and it's uh yeah exactly (laughs) so so this is a cool study to look at because uh, the methodology in the study that you're referring to and i wish i could remember the authors and give them credit um I don't know, maybe you guys can look it up after and, and post it. But the the cool thing about that study is that was over like a two-week period and everything that they, I think I'm getting this right, everything that they ate, they were fed by the, the investigators and they slept at a sleep lab every night for those two weeks. So it was really, really controlled compared to other studies. And they looked at a lot of variables that are not easy to look at. So they really did a nice job with that study design. And what they found was, I think it was a five-hour group and an eight-and-a-half-hour group or an eight-hour group. And what they found was that the sufficient sleep, they both lost the same amount of weight, but the change in body composition was completely different. And the people that were uh, lacking sleep lost a lot of fat-free mass and the people that didn't lost mostly fat. We don't know what the mechanism of that is, but just the fact that they did that study in such a controlled and such an elegant way gives us all kinds of new targets mechanistically to start to look at. Um, I don't do this type of work anymore, but somebody out there that is, you can start looking at those types of things now because you have this phenomenon that we see, but we don't necessarily understand the mechanism behind that. And so is that, uh, it has to be something with the hormone cycles throughout the night and making sure those fully play out over eight to nine hours, as opposed to interrupting them at four or five hours. It's a very cool study. Right. So just, it, yeah. So sleep. People, yeah. Yeah. Sleep is huge. And this is the other thing though, is that, Sleep is also highly individual. So what's cool about that study is that they actually had a group response given a mixed group of people that they got. Because a lot of times you get people that 
there are just a certain number. There's a certain amount of people that don't need a lot of sleep. And it is not fair because <laughs> they can sleep three to four hours a night, still train really hard, still recover really well. And they just get like four extra hours in the day. <laughs> And then there's other people that need like nine to 10 hours of sleep plus a 90 minute nap each day. And it's, you know, it's beyond the scope of like this current conversation. It's something maybe yeah. we want to talk about in the future. But just in general, if you have good sleep hygiene, that's the, that's the first thing is like, do you have a good pre-bedtime routine? Are you avoiding screens? Are you coming down in a, and then when you feel tired, do you actually go to bed? And then uh, do you go to bed around the same time? Do you get up at the same time? And how's your quality of sleep? And if I'm sure everybody that listens to this is, is looking at their Whoop or their Aura or their Apple Watch or whatever, there's a lot of insight that you can get from those things, especially when you start looking at resting heart rate and HRV. And then, you know, the new Apple Watch is crazy. It does like, and I know the Aura Ring and the Whoop do this as well, where they you can get information about deep sleep and light sleep and all these different types of things. And it really does change depending on, um, and you'll see if you overreach, if you if you have one of those yellow days or you have one of those red days, look at your sleep quality. Um, and it's nothing to get mad about. You look at it and you have to make an adjustment. The problem is, is uh, if you have three red days a week and that's all you're training, it's you're never going to get to where you want to get if you have had a bunch of greens and yellows and, and you just put that consistent over a longer period of time. For that sleep thing, I, sorry, John, there's this uh, okay. another really it's great, great study <laughs> yeah. that I saw that um, it talked, it had people sleep, like be time in bed, like eight, six, four, or like no hours, right? And then it was doing a, um, it was a test on like attentiveness or some kind of like performance response with your brain. And everyone's performance got worse. It was like for two weeks, every night, even the eight hours, because they said they didn't actually get eight hours because there was time in bed. But what the interesting part was the yeah. people who had six hours, like halfway through, they thought they plateaued and they thought they got used to it, but they didn't get used to it. Their performance kept getting so bad. <laughs> and after two weeks, yeah. it was as bad as the people who didn't sleep at all. Like the people who didn't sleep, like they could only do two nights in a row, yeah. but they were at the same performance yeah. level as the people that didn't sleep for one night. So I would, I would argue to that thing and those people that, and I know them too, they're like, they, they pride themselves. They, t they will tell you it's like CrossFitters. Yeah. I sleep five hours per night, <laughs> but they could probably do so much better if they did sleep more um, yeah. in their life. And just because they are performing well, doesn't mean it's optimal. We had to talk about this before, just because pro cyclists did it for a while, doesn't mean it's the right way. And just because they're doing amazing, they might have yeah. amazing genetics to do yeah. even better. What's interesting is like, it, it's it's really cool when you get people starting to think like, what if that's not how I respond? Or let me test that theory. Like if, if, I, if I wake up at 4 a.m. every day and I do it long enough, I'll get used to it. Mm. Uh, that's one I don't want people to necessarily test. But if you did and then you got to it and let's just say through pure force of will and you said, this is the way I operate. This is what I've done. I've done it for years. I get up at 4 a.m. and it works for me and I've gotten used to it. It's a really difficult thing for people to say, what if I've been doing this not the right way? Is that too much of a, like your whole life structure and identity and those types of things would, would, it, it would threaten that too much to even try. But what if you were like, you know what, I'm going to see what, what happens if I can break through this plateau that I've been on for the last year and a half, 
if I sleep 10 hours. And that's my number one goal for, for the next six weeks or next eight weeks. I'm going to see what happens there. And I think it's really cool. Like, you don't want to do that too often. You know, I was having this conversation with a coach and he was saying, like, when I was younger, if someone was really close to who, like, uh, making a podium or or making a world team or making a you know something like if they were really close to that breakthrough my thought when i was younger was we're doing something wrong i need to implement a bunch of changes so we can get over that hump and he's like in actuality what i've learned through experience and a lot of like this close close calls is that when you start getting closer, it's a sign that what you're doing is right. And you have to start asking yourself, mm. how can I do the things I'm doing better? Not what can I go back and do differently this year? That's so good. And I've seen this, I've seen this before where people say, like, well, I was close. And so I have this in the barn and I have that in the barn. So now I'm gonna try and develop this thing that I kind of suck at because that's going to unlock and it doesn't your total performance does not add up in that additive sense you have to triple down on the things you're really good at and the things you know you're good at you have to become reasonable at the things you're bad at and then you have to apply consistency and that level of dedication and that's where you start getting those breakthroughs and so you don't want to go back to the drawing board every time you get close you want to think like hey that was actually sustainable that was a really good build up I'm healthy and I'm closer to my goal than I've ever been. So this isn't me needing to like, you know, just start like broadcasting David Doggins through my house all <laughs> 24 hours a day. So that I could be Poor like, kids. this isn't, this, 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 <laughs> these things are actually, we're going in the right direction. We just need to get better at the things that we know we can get better at. And that's when you make those that's when you start to have those breakthroughs. That's a great point to leave off on. I feel like Kyle, um, if for athletes, again, we're talking about here, how to lose weight and how to maintain that weight loss and everything else. And I feel like we covered so many things in a really like deep and yes, also practical way. It's awesome. <laughs> so Kyle, uh, huge thanks for coming on here. One of your athletes, Josh Kerr, uh, on the Brooks beast just set a world record time in the indoor. I think it was what the Ooh, two did. 2k or 800 was they how good remember. does that feel so it was two miles two miles, so it was, was a two it? mile it, it was an indoor two mile the previous record i think was like 803 803 six and he ran eight flat point four <laughs> and so, how good does that feel Kyle, um, when your athletes do yeah. that sort of thing uh you're putting me in an awkward position Nate, because you i you're uh, part of a team you, but still, you i'd be like you're proud <laughs> This is not uh, this is not my strong suit. So I'll tell you this: when when he did that, I I just texted him one word, and it said "yup." It had a period. <laughs> That's all I said. It was just like, and, and he just said "appreciate you," and like that was enough. Yeah, his. We can talk more about if you want to. His story is just so cool, and he just like talk about like consistency. Go look at his world finishes from the time going back to like 2018 and look at the trajectory. It just like, it just makes sense. So that's a testament to Josh. It's a testament to coach Danny. Um, I'm super privileged to have played a role in that for Gretchen. Um, and so when these, when these big things start falling, 
or, or start happening is just, it's just really cool. Like it, it, there's nobody that deserves it more than Josh. He's super talented, but he also does things the right way. Um, you guys don't know him, start following him, go check out his uh, kind of emergence and growth. And he's been on a million different podcasts over the last six months because he won the 1500 meter world championship last year. Mm-hmm. And um, and he's trying to do something people don't, and, and he's talked openly about this. This isn't inside baseball. It, like he's talked openly about, um, you know, that oftentimes when people get to the top, it's sort of now what? And he stayed really humble and really motivated. And it's very cool to see him on form um, this early, I mean, off a world championship. So cool. Way to go. It's awesome. He's a man. I feel good about it. Yeah. <laughs> as you should. Sorry, <laughs> no, I'm glad I wanted to take yeah. time. to So thanks for giving him a shout out. Yeah. I really appreciate it. And uh, we had a, the beast had an awesome uh, indoor U S championship. We had uh do um we we had a second so we had an 800 meter make the team 800 meter runner make the team uh two thirds a fourth and a fifth so we had five top fives as a team at, at national championship so across distances from 800 to 3000 meters so it's cool. cool it's a testament yeah. to their team their squad coach danny our approach so it's fun and road season's getting and the started. biking really hasn't gotten going, right? It's getting yeah. there. Yeah. Cross country, Olympic gravel, everything's starting up. So it's going to be a good year for good year to be caught. Yeah. So, uh, well, thanks everybody. I like this. Uh, I like this Brazil date that's coming up. That's a cool sort of early season treat for XEL. So yeah. Yeah. I'm excited, excited for, for that. that. It'll be great. Uh, if any of you want, you can longest outro ever. That's right. I'll put Kyle's uh, Instagram down below. <laughs> And you'll be able to check him out there. Yeah, yeah. And if you have questions or anything else that you'd like to ask us here on the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast, you can do so at trainroad.com slash podcast. As Nate mentioned, new features that you can use that are we do we've done a lot of things here at Trainer Road over the past 12 years, I think, uh, that we've that I've been with Trainer Road. But I think that the things that we're doing now with AI FTP detection and everything else, we're entering new ground. Like it hasn't been done before uh, with red light, green light and everything else. It's really exciting stuff. So go sign up for it. Go check it out. If you've been waiting, this is your sign. We'll talk to you next time. Take care. Bye-bye.